Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion, and our second hour today will be general discussion as well. Well, two hours of that. So this is a great week or a great day to ask questions. So um, so go ahead and throw those into Makana. Um, and uh, today is the graphics day. So if uh, you want to lean towards graphics questions, we're ready. We're ready to answer your questions there. So if you've got uh, questions that, that in that area, go ahead and throw those in. Of course, if you have any other general questions, you can throw those in as well. Um, so uh, so let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Alan Jones from Vincenza, Italy. My friend is experiencing challenges focusing when trying to shoot pics and videos at night with her 14 Pro, specifically moonshots over an ocean and fireworks video. Zoom is sometimes involved. Does anyone here experience this too? And if so, what's the solution? Good, Bill. I'm not at all surprised at this. So uh, the iPhones are particularly notable for their computational photography skills. There's a there's a pretty powerful chip in there. But in order for it to do computational photography, it has to understand what's in the scene. And with a lack of light, that becomes difficult. Uh, the new phones obviously have LiDAR, but obviously LiDAR is not going to do anything for you when you're talking about shooting the moon or fireworks that are hundreds and hundreds, potentially thousands of feet away. It doesn't have any data to to grab onto. Now, you can do some things if you know kind of um, something at the same distance and can can find it in your frame and touch on it, it will lock focus. Focus lock is one of the things the iPhones do. So you might be able to use that manual focus capability to improve your shots, but it's always going to be difficult in low light situations for the automated systems to work as well as they do with a lot of light. They're pretty stunning with a lot of light, but without light, not so stunning. Go ahead, Chris. Alan, I, I have to say this kind of uh, rings of one of these comments like, Apple can't do something that's absolutely impossible. I hate Apple. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, it's a very difficult photo. I've seen some amazing ones. And I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure how they do it. But it just the, the sound of that question just kind of struck me as funny. This is impossible. Why can't it do it? Go ahead, it's a Jason. tough photo. Well, it's an even tougher way to do video. All smartphones are pretty wide to begin with. And, um, you know, to, to get the picture you're imagining, I think you actually need more zoom than you think you need. And um, the iPhone does fall down when it comes to, to some serious zoom. Uh, I'd be sure that I'm not in cinematic mode. Um, it could be that it's using its computational photography to jerk away your focus. Um, other than that, I would try um, try one of the better recommended, um, you know, video apps that aren't from Apple. See if that helps. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I've even seen uh, some digital cameras with fireworks mode on the settings for it for the amateurs. So uh, that's one thing. But the basic thing is turn off autofocus, set it on infinity if you can, if you have enough control over your camera. And, uh, you know, uh, set the exposure if you want to have something in the foreground, set exposure for that. And then the fireworks may just go over a little bit. But uh, if you set your uh, focus on infinity, it won't be searching for focus uh, once you shoot the moon or shoot the fireworks because, uh, you know, they're going to be at infinity. And if you're close enough to not be on infinity, you're standing too close to the fireworks. Yeah, um, infinity, um, taking taking the autofocus off, I would use either Filmic or Halide uh, would be the software that I'd probably use with an iPhone. And uh, I put on a tripod, heavy tripod. 
you know, like, so it may seem like hand-holding something like this will be very, very difficult. You're taking a hard shot and making it impossible. But you can get some, I've got some, I've gotten some pretty good results out of it with moons and with fireworks. Um, but it has to do with um, either letting it completely go off. With fireworks, you can let it just go. It'll just do it. Um, but with with a moonshot, you really have to, you want to put a tripod on, you want to manually focus it, turn off the, you know, um, then you can zoom in and carefully uh, craft the shot. Next question. Next question from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Has anyone made use of programmable NFC stickers, and do they work? There's a link to it on Amazon. I think they're $15 a pack. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I absolutely have. Um, One of the easiest ways that I've used, I was telling Mitch before the show, is to um, to set an automation and um, for my washing machine. So, you know, set a timer for 37 minutes and I just boot my watch or boot my phone onto it and I have a countdown that's preset and really easy. I've also used it for access control uh, with existing corporate badges. It's easy to add NFC to that with, you know, a tiny little sticker. Good, Michael. It's funny, I opened up this link on Amazon and funnily enough, I purchased this exact pack a year ago today. Uh, So I can confirm that they do work. We use them for um, our sporting events that we broadcast. We do have some kind of like voting interactions that that go on. And so we'll have people tap to be able to access that website and put their votes in. Uh, I will recommend the NFC Tag Writer app. There are other apps available, but um, that's been the most successful for me. And and is that on Mac or PC? Uh, It's on iPhone, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, it's a tag writer app and it, you just tap it and then pro, it, you, it gives the, it programs it to do what you want it to do. Yeah. So basically in the app, you have a bunch of different um, options, whether you want it to be a URL or when you, whether you want to actually like embed other types of um, items and then you, yeah, you just tap it and it writes it to it. It'll confirm whether it happened or not. You can um, verify and it's set. Interesting. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I bought a set of these about uh, eight or nine years ago, played with them for a while. Then I got a phone that uh, was wireless charging and didn't support NFC anymore. So I stopped playing with them. Uh, now my phone supports NFC. But you bear that in mind. Uh, uh, there are a lot of phones out there that don't support NFC. More and more these days do. But about five or six years ago, it was hit or miss. Next question. Next one in from David Brady in New York, New York, looking for a low barrier to entry solution for generating HLS streams for our internal digital signage solution. What products, hardware and software should I start leaning into? Go, Jason. Okay, this is a very low-end solution, but that's kind of what I like about it because I've found that it's pretty stable and pretty reliable. Uh, Posterbooking.com is designed to be used with any screen at all. It can be manipulated and programmed remotely, and you can use it with those cheap fire sticks that you thought you were going to be using uh, that you bought for some reason at some point during Amazon Prime Day. They can be remotely monitored. Does it receive it? Or, it receives. or generate it. Oh, yeah. This no, I think it, he wants to generate it. So it's like he, he wants to encode an HLS. Oh, well, this isn't right. going to help then. I, I, the only reason I popped that up is when I first read it, I was thinking about all these decoders. And then I read it again. I was like, oh, no, no, it's encoding that he's trying to do. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, BrightSign has a pretty big ecosystem, uh, encoding and decoding in various flavors. So take a look there. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about basic HLS, I mean, you're generating it and then you have to figure out how you want to manage that. Um, most 
at this point, most things could do 1080p. You probably take the, the, the Melee Quieter 3 is probably powerful enough to generate an HLS stream. Um, the, the way that most people would do it if they're going to, um, you, of course, you could do it with something like, um, I mean, lots of things will do HLS. So you have uh, OBS could produce that um, on that as well as um, you could have OBS. But the, the one that if you're building something kind of straight to the metal would be FFmpeg. Um, now there are specific um, uh, pieces of hardware. One place that you want, might want to look is cnx-software.com. And, um, and so CNX makes these, um, uh, it's, it's embedded systems. And they make, this is a, uh, let's see if I can pull this up for you here. Um, and uh, this was sent to me by someone who know, knows an incredible amount about what she's doing <laughs> in HLS. So, uh, so anyway, um, uh, this is, this is the, um, uh, this is the encoder. Now this will take five 4k 30 HDMI inputs and encode them, uh, in HLS there. So you'll see, this is an embedded system that's designed, uh, you know, and so this is going to be, and here you can see the, you know, it, it supports our, uh, all of these formats here. So, um, so it, it will do a lot of this on its own. Um, it's not a very expensive piece. They also make boards, I believe. There's a lot of different ways and even monitors. Um, so uh, cnx-software.com is probably a one way if you're really looking for something low level. And then you can be using what it has there. FFmpeg is an option as far as, you know, what you use there. So um, take a look at that. But I would take, check that out. Oop, and I lost my video. Um, let's go to the next question. Bill, next question come yep next question coming in yep. from oh, paul paul wallace in austin texas the tour de france femmes just started stage three today same announcers and still on peacock what will it when or what will it take for it to catch on so it's a very difficult shoot the tour de france i actually have a friend who works for itv as a stringer and he worked the Tour de France main thing. It is literally logistically one of the most complicated things because the Tour de France takes so much distance. I mean, literally it can kind of cross country borders and you're going up mountains and things like that. And most of the time the coverage is continuous. So they have an extraordinary infrastructure to do that. It is a very expensive show. And it has a huge budget uh, commensurate with that. Um, for the women writers who are amazing athletes, I'm just not sure that they're, it's going to take some serious sponsorship and some serious viewership for them to double that effort every year. And um, maybe in the era that we're looking at, I mean, you know, everybody's talking about the Barbie movie and how, what an amazing uh, financial success it's been because women just said yes and men said yes to I want to see what Gretiger would do with this film. It may be the era where we see more things that uh, more balance uh, just as the soccer world is getting more balance now between the male and female teams. Maybe we'll see the same thing going on with this. Uh, Courtney has some thoughts. Courtney? Yeah, I just think the sport of uh, bicycle racing isn't that uh, keen. Maybe it isn't. Of course, in France, it's probably a lot more popular. But something like a marathon or uh, the Tour de France, it lasts a long time. <clears throat> you only really care about who wins. And so uh, if you're watching, you know, it's hard to maintain an audience for that period of time because I don't think there's that much excitement and back and forth and jockeying for position because usually... Uh, a leader pulls out ahead uh, somewhere near the beginning and stays there for most of the uh, competition. And so it's kind of boring, I think. And so I think to attract an audience for that and marathons, 
we have coverage of the LA Marathon every year, and I'm not sure how many people watch that. It's only carried on one of the independent channels, so I'm not sure how sure I'm not sure how great the audience is for something like that to maintain coverage. Uh, let's go to Alan. Sure. Yeah. So I'm assuming the question is is implying what's it going to take for it to catch on in the United States because. It is pretty big in Europe, as Courtney was saying, in France and Europe, it is a pretty big event. It was big for a while during that whole Lance Armstrong era. And, you know, with the controversy surrounding him, I think it's going to take another uh, heroic figure coming from the United States in order to get it to catch on. But but as, again, everybody's kind of saying, it's I don't think Americans have the attention span for it. right? And it's just not a local event. So... Until we get an American in there, it's probably going to be a little side note. Yeah, it's a very interesting show because it takes place over, what is it, five days or something like that? So you've got the actual writing, the sports performance, if you will, during the day. But then you've got hours and hours where they're off and the audience has to be motivated to come back, particularly in those middle stages. Uh, there was always some kind of, uh, you know, they're in the Pyrenees or something, so it's really rough going. And I think that was interesting for the people who are seriously interested in that. But it's a tough one. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Bobby Rafferty in Florida, now that DaVinci Resolve 18.5 is out of beta, what are the thoughts on this release? And Alex, you're back. Are you? Is your mic yep. working okay? Yep. I'm good to okay, go. Good. <laughs> the camera just turned off. I don't know why. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Um, all right. It's only been out for, what, a day or two. And uh, what I've been most impressed by is is um the ai based it's it's far down on this page but you know the ai based audio classification is surprisingly good also super scale they're not kidding is much faster and um that is as far as i can tell one of the very best ways to not lose sharpness when you're scaling up yeah go ahead chris um jason do you know what they mean by audio classification yeah. Um, so you, you know how you label your audio tracks, like, you know, dialogue, sound effects, B-roll, um, you know, music, orchestration, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's that's my understanding of what they're trying to do. Hmm. So do, do, uh, I think it's interesting. I think that um, more and more, especially in the last year, nine months, whatever, uh, I personally am getting tired of people shoehorning the phrase AI into every <laughs> yes, every but this ad, one works. every PR, <laughs> every PR. I mean, Final Cut has had that for six years, and they didn't bother calling it AI. It's just it's what you do. I well, mean, they have classification. Is it automatic? I've never seen it work yes, automatically. Yes, yes, mm. it can. Yes. So anyway, I, I I just I find maybe I'm the only one. I probably am, but it's just like, oh, yeah, we have to call everything AI. I have uh, AI in my sock drawer. You know, I mean, come on, give it up. Uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I love Resolve. I think it's a great uh, program. It's ultimately going to beat everybody. I think it's just a matter of time. And I go back to it every once in a while from my Premiere Pro, and I see great features that they keep adding. Some of them work great, some not so much. So, like so many different programs out there, I'd like to see less features like AI uh, and more tightening up of some of the uh, the things that are cool, but just don't always work quite right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, 
Resolve has become pretty powerful. <laughs> and when we say when we talk about updates, I guess the Final Cut update has not been the most successful update that they've that Apple's had. So there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth online. I, I haven't I didn't upgrade it yet. I was just kind of watching. I'm watching all the volleys. But but um but the uh you know I think that I do I think that the the three editors that I think are really the leaders in my opinion are you know Avid owns a huge part of the net, of of broadcast television and film production. Uh, I think Resolve is very high end and is adding features and not not just features, but capability faster than anyone else. And I think Final Cut has a different way of doing things that's a lot faster on in many projects <laughs> than, than both of the, the other two. And so I feel like those three have real, um, I feel like they all three of them have a real place in the world. The one that I don't really understand as much as Premiere. You know, I think Premiere was what everyone went to after they got after Final Cut went to Final Cut 10. Um, but but I feel like I don't understand how that, I mean, I think it fits in as a inertia because you got the the Adobe suite, you know, but I think that it's uh, it's pretty buggy. <laughs> like, like, you know, I, I opened it about a year ago and crashed it a bunch of times. And I was just like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just not going to use this anymore. Like I, I had to open some project and I was like, oh, I'm just not going to, we'll, we'll hire somebody to do this. I just, I, it was, it was really not, a great experience for me. Um, and so that was, the, but that's the first time I'd opened Premiere uh, in 10 years. And I, maybe it was just what I was doing, but it, it immediately didn't like to do that. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just saying I had uh, all sorts of difficulties with the migration to the new um, operating system when I was back on my Intel laptop. I, I do think this Apple Silicon initiative and the fact that the chips are now substantially different and faster, uh, I've had almost no difficulties on my M-series laptop now. Uh, it, it was just night and day in terms of fluidity, and I think they're building toward the software of the future. Apple's always done that. They kind of they try their best to keep the old stuff working as long as possible, but when they do make a significant shift forward, if you're not ready to come along with them in hardware, it gets more and more difficult. And that's kind of been my experience with this. Next question. New computer solved a lot of things. Next question. Next question from Tony Denson in Leeds. OBS virtual camera on versions later than version 27. Does anyone here have this working? I've been trying for two years. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, what I will tell you is that, and we just were talking about it before the show, uh, OBS adds a lot of latency to your camera feed. So um, I would be very careful to add, I think OBS adds both latency and instability to your live feed. And it's probably not something I would use as a virtual camera. Um, so, you know, I think that using it for streaming, I think is fine. I think using it as a virtual camera, um, I think we see, we just see a lot of idiosyncrasies. Um, some people get it working and they leave it in a stable state, but, you know, we see green frames and um, a lot of other things that pop up and, and glitches. And so I, I think that uh, um, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use OBS as a virtual camera. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, next question. Jacob, good night in Indianapolis, Indiana. What are the best practices when using a Blackmagic HyperDeck Studio to play back videos for live events? I've noticed MP4 files are unstable, even if resolution, bitrate, and frames per second are consistent. Do you recommend only using ProRes? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, ProRes or DNX... Uh... HD should work fine, uh, both the ProRes, if you do it, uh, uh, do it in ProRes HQ if you want high quality uh, or just regular standard ProRes. Uh, the problem with MP4 is it's H.264 and there's so many different flavors of it. Uh, it 
only supports, I think, one of those many flavors. So if you didn't encode it on the uh, HyperDeck Studio, if you didn't record it on that HyperDeck Studio, it may not be able to play it back because it's very picky about the resolution and frame rate and you know all the different flavors of compression because it only has one or two different types of decoders uh, on uh, H.264, H.265. So record it on there, it should play back fine, or just use ProRes. Uh, or DNX HD, if you have that capability, if you have an Avid or something. Go, Jason. Most of the time, my HyperDeck rack is used for ISO recording when I'm doing live events, not for live playback. I tend to want to use MIDI and um, and an SDI card playout to do that. Uh, that said, the first rule is you throw everything through Edit Ready or through Hedge or through um, Compressor. You standardize it to something that is not a mezzanine uh, codec. It instead is actually frame for frame. You make sure it's completely standardized, and then you make sure it absolutely positively works. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, I agree with uh, Courtney. The uh, uh, Picking one format, one frame rate, everything uh, is the secret to getting through the HyperDeck world. And I think ProRes is the most stable of all of them because it only comes, generally comes from Apple. So uh, the H.264 can be a problem because uh, it's just a little more finicky in terms of the various versions of it. Yeah, I would never try to do H.264 through a hardware device. Um, now, we do play out in a pinch. We will do play out of H.264 from something like we use Softron on the air because it supports 10-bit and we need to have a 10-bit playback system So, um, so for, for what I do. So I so we use that. And in that case, we use ProRes HQ. Um, but we, you know, in a pinch, if we have to send a countdown clock or something, but we wouldn't play anything out that matters um, in H.264 or MP4. Um, we, what we typically have on site are hyperdecks that are ready to play the things that we knew we were going to play um, so that we can activate them. And then we have a Softron on the air um, that is um, there to handle things quickly because we can just load it in and hit play. So so those are the two things that we use the most um, for, for those processes. And again, all of that's in 10-bit, which means it's all in HQ. Um, but we, I have a um, just a setting in Compressor and I don't care what you send me. Even if you send me something that says ProRes HQ, uh, I'm still going to throw it on that compressor setting because there's little bits that can be changed. Uh, the number of channels, the number, and everything down there. There's nothing that says automatic on my settings. And it's all just, it is all, this is the way I'm going to have it pop out the other end. It's going to be this many tracks of audio, this many. It has to be, all of them have to be identical for the HyperDeck to work properly. So um, so I just have a setting there and I just push them all through. You could probably do that with H.264, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I would recommend, if you're not doing 10-bit, 422 is just fine. And if you're doing 10-bit, then then HQ. And then if you're doing key fill out of a, out of a, uh, uh, out of a hyperdeck, and then you then of course need Apple ProRes four x four. Next question, Jacob. Good night from Indianapolis, Indiana. Asking, has anyone tried Piffin's new Connect Unity Unify service for Teams and Zoom-based productions? Seems like an easy-to-use solution for producing high production value events in the cloud. Any downsides? I go ahead, Chris. Uh, Jacob, I personally have not used it, but I know that uh, Jonas. Uh, has. He's often here on Fridays. I'd highly recommend you ask the same question on Friday. He'll give you the lowdown. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely ask if, in, in, or you can ask in Discord. Um, it definitely looks like an interesting platform. Uh, the pricing seemed a little uh, heavy the first time they at least showed it to us. Um, so, so that'd be the only thing I'd say. Um, next question. 
from Dale Nepeta from Oakland, California, asking, Alex, I saw a poster at a movie theater saying Metallica is performing live for two nights in Arlington, Texas, and it will be shown in theaters worldwide. Are you involved with this event August 18th and 20th? I am not involved in this event, um, but I have streamed to theaters and I have uh, um, streamed Metallica. <laughs> so, so I've done I've done all the different pieces, but not this one specifically. Um, by uh, what I will say is probably going to be a great show. It'd be really interesting to see. Um, I'm probably going to go just to see what they do there. I'm trying to see, um, trying to figure out who they're using for uh, this this live stream. It looks like. Uh, um, my guess is that they're, oh, it's interesting. Oh, Trafalgar. So it's probably not live. Um, Trafalgar doesn't do, as far as I know, Trafalgar doesn't do live. Um, so what they do is they'll, it's broadcasted live, um, but it's a tape. <laughs> so, so, so Trafalgar does tapes. Um, so I don't think, I, I don't, I don't think that Trafalgar does a live network um, output. Um, they do live events. So they'll, they'll have it feel like it's live. Um, I'm sure it'll be a great experience, but it's not, it's not really live from Arlington, I don't, I don't think, um, unless they've changed their, their system dramatically, which is possible, but, but it's, um, but when they did, um, they did one, uh, one of the Korean bands and I just can't, uh, think of it right now, but they, they did a uh, Korean band and that was also recorded and made a lot of money though. It was a really successful stream. Go ahead, Bill. Someone's invoked Metallica. So somebody on the show must do rock on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, uh, one thing to look at is there's a new part of this tour that they just did. There is a new behind the scenes on YouTube that is stunningly good, stunningly good. There's actually a whole, uh, I, I just found it uh, over the weekend. Um, there is a entire channel dedicated to behind the scenes of different tours. Um, but they did a tour. They, um, they're talking about the entire pipeline of the Metallica tour. Um, and so I think if you do, if you search for Metallica X2 behind the scenes, I think you'll see it. And again, there's this whole channel that's dedicated to it. And it's about 25 or 30 minutes long and uh, really good video. Like it's just it's a little, sometimes a little long in places, but, but in general, I, it's, there's a lot of behind the scenes and they really get into a lot of the nitty gritty of what, what it takes for them to do those things. And they're, they're, you'll, you'll, they, they were listing their audio, their audio is, they have a primary backup, tertiary emergency, they had four way, I mean, like the emergency backup for their audio chain is analog, <laughs> like literally analog cables. I don't know how well it would work, but it would be like they have a lot of backups. So anyway, it's, it's really interesting. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, staying with Metallica, the Metallica M72 World Tour live from Texas event is being shown later in some markets to suit local time zones. Are they delaying the content to play it out later? Would they be using an EVS or similar, or would they be sending DCPs out? So the DCP process would take a while. Um, so I, I don't think that they would do that. Again, I don't think it's live. I think that they're just doing play out, um, and they, so it won't be hard for them to play out at different times. Um, there now, if they're sending, if they're, they may be sending DCP out to all of the theaters to give you the live experience. But it's, but again, it, I don't believe that Trafalgar is sending out something live. I think they're broadcasting something out. So that wouldn't be very hard for them to do. Um, if you're doing it from an, if they, if they were doing it from an actual live show, which maybe they are, uh, I don't, I don't know anything about the back end of this. You would use an EVS and we have used things for time shifting across different networks or different time zones. EVSs are really useful in broadcast. So for instance, a lot of times uh, you might see a show on the East coast that's live, live in the East Coast, they will edit it all um, in an EVS and then play it back out again uh, before the 
before the before it broadcasts uh, in the West Coast because they'll make corrections. So the West Coast is slightly cleaner than the East Coast uh, some sometimes. And so, but I don't. I think in this case they would probably just play it out if they were using a network. But I have a sneaky suspicion that all the theaters might have DCPs. Um, next question from Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California, and right here in our panel, Alex. How is your quest for a new password manager going? Did you receive my recommendation this weekend from Amazon? As he I have it here. I have it here. Uh, uh, Chris sent me a password book. This is the password book from Amazon <laughs> that I could write my passwords in. Here, there it is. There's Chris's password book, and I have the password book. Now <laughs> we did discuss the fact that I would never write my passwords in a in a piece of paper. But Chicken. but 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 Chris Chris feels that this is it probably would be good for my parents. So, I, I don't will know admit, if you read, my, my parents have post its everywhere. So this would probably be better a better solution to have them all in one place, written and organized. For the record, post its are fine as long as you post them on the back of the monitor. Also. You need, I, I think this is a joke. I, I don't know, maybe not. But did you read all of the, the icons at the bottom of the screen here, or the bottom of the, the label here? Number one, it says, untitled for security. Number two, alphabetized tabs, pretty and functional is bullet number three. Take control, bullet number four, and stay organized. But I love it untitled for security meaning it doesn't say passwords on the front well only right. on the label this this paper label Here, comes we'll take, off we'll, when we'll you open unwrap it. it it just has a little wolf on it it's, wolf. it's the password wolf it's the clever fox password oh, book fox sorry fox wolf so it might be a wolf but i would it's imagine probably it's probably a fox, a, a fox, fox. considering it's, it's got called clever fox. a little pen holder i mean that's the way i would just, do the branding you might do it differently alex you're but, entitled well, the thing to is, it. is it doesn't have it doesn't have, uh, oh my gosh! Um, it doesn't. It doesn't have a thing on the outside. But if you're able to open it, it says website, username, password, hint, hint. It even has the password and the hint and the notes. Yeah. And then and, and there's a section that you just have to jump to, which is very important. Like so if anybody's interested, your very uh, important information. Hit me up in Discord. <laughs> I'll send you a link. I found it on Amazon. You could probably <laughs> find it too, unless your Google is completely is. broken. It has a very, um, it, it does, to keep it from opening accidentally, it has a very uh, high secure, you know, this little rubber band here, you know, it, it keeps it from just <laughs> flying open, you know, it's, it's all there. <laughs> so if I may, if I may, so I was just informed that uh, uh, th this does lead to something serious. I was just informed the other day that we have assigned uh, one of our producers to be our, uh, she called herself the um, uh, cybersecurity czar or something. One of our clients has upped their requirements of how we manage our passwords. And I thought that was a, a bit draconian. But have you ever heard of this where a, a, a client that you've worked for, that they want to send an auditor to, oh, yeah. to figure out how we're managing <laughs> our passwords? Mm -hmm. They yeah. also have somebody who <laughs> apparently they want Been to there. come and check how we're doing our laundry and check which laundry soap we're using. They didn't say which they I didn't thought that. was strange. They left the laundry out, but I've absolutely we we had to certify that we had we had done all the little we had to do a like a three hour like multiple choice whatever you know it's one of those videos that you had to watch about security and then we had to sign up for a um, a thing that automatically tests you all the time. So it's constantly sending you phishing schemes that will report back that, hey, they clicked on something they shouldn't click on. 
and everything else. And so you were constantly under attack, um, you know, to make sure that you were uh, vigilant uh, in that area. And then we had to um, you know, this, manage not only how we manage like passwords, but how we manage the entire network, uh, how how our space was co- configured, uh, the alarm systems, the uh, cybersecurity, how we managed email. Like, like yeah, I've definitely, that's what, that was just one client. <laughs> and yet, I may point out, and this is all I'll say about this, don't, don't be alarmed, Alex. And yet, I guessed the password of the rear gate at Onano. I'm just going to guess that. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to ask if it had a little lock on it, like, uh, you know, my diary did that your sister used to have <laughs> yeah. when she was six years old. Yeah. A little lock that you lock you it go. up to first uh, extra secure. You go, go ahead, Bill, real quick. I was just going to say, everybody knows it's way more convenient to put them on the whiteboard in the conference room. Come on, people. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the irony is not lost on me that we've shown this book for the last uh, three minutes on office hours. Why don't you just hold it up a little longer so everybody knows what book to go to first? Yeah, exactly. There it is. Uh, I, I recommend when you go into, I'll just put a bunch of fake, a bunch of stuff in here. I would never do this. So, so, so I will put fake stuff in. It's a really good idea. What I should do is just have a this like sitting there, and it. It should just be all fake passwords. I can just fill them out with random stuff. Every just, password is monkey123. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> funny, it'd be funny if you had a, had a book like this and had all the websites, but in all the passwords, it was just the same password. It was like password123. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. So the last step there is, sure, it would make a great decoy book, but what you actually need to do is on each page, just sprinkle a little bit of that fingerprint powder that's impossible to get off, right, so that you can tell who's been wanting your decoys. Or we could just do Name of the Rose and go all the way down that path. Um, (laughs) All right. Just a quick quick reminder that... uh, that you can ask questions throughout this. We're doing two hours of Q&A or one and a half hours or one hour and 15 minutes of Q&A, depending on how many questions you ask. So if you uh, if you want to throw some questions into Makana, go ahead and do that right now. Of course, vote on those questions. We've got uh, Alan McKay here. Uh, uh, his is here and he is uh, Alan Hawks. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> I get my brain is like I, I've known Alan for a long time. And my brain gets a little jacked up there. So um, Alan Hawks is here. Um, and uh and he is an incredible uh, 3D artist, and so he's got lots of questions, uh, lots of answers. Uh, if you've got CG questions, uh, Michael uh, Flotron is here, and he is new to our. Um, so we have to test him. So go ahead and ask live streaming questions. Put him to the test here. Um, and so we've got a lot of new folks, new new faces, and some of the some of the regular uh, faces. So go ahead and ask those questions. And uh, let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Apple just announced that developers can get early access to test their applications at various centers around the world. What does the panel think the first AR apps will be? Good, Bill. I think they're building out their infrastructure as Vision Pro rolls out. Obviously, it's going to require people go into the Apple Store originally to do some fitting measurements and things like that. And so I think they're building toward an infrastructure where they have more hands-on as people, as they build out their virtual reality ecosystem. Uh, so I just think this is a, a, an early salvo and where they see this kind of spatial computing going. Good, Courtney. 
I don't know what kind of consumer apps are going to develop it because, you know, AR and VR has been around for 20 years or so, and there haven't been really any consumer apps that have really come out. There've been a lot of industrial vertical market apps that have been developed. And I think some of the first apps that are going to be developed for the Vision Pro are going to be architectural related so that you could uh, maybe put it on. And since it's mobile, walk around a construction site that just has the wooden framing up and let you see all the finished you know, what the finished building was going to look like as you walk around the framing site. That would be an interesting app to see. Um, as far as other augmented reality sites, uh, apps, other than repairing jet engines and other applications we've seen featured on the, like HoloLens and the other AR devices, I'm not sure what there is new that would appeal to the general consumer. That's that's the big question. Is there a consumer app other than just using the virtual space as a workspace? And I, I think that's kind of just a gimmick and really won't catch on. But other than that, I, I can't think of any consumer-based apps that would be really great on that particular device. Uh, I think that it'll be interesting. I think that... Um... I, I feel like uh, you will probably see some educational pieces that are like travel through space, that type of thing, travel through molecules, travel through those types of things, go back. Um, virtual tours will probably be something that people show a fair bit of. Uh, games, of course, will be something that people um, are going to uh, release out there. Again, it'll be a pretty small market when it first gets started, but the good thing for if you're a developer is that it's a lot of people that are trying to figure this thing out and they just spend a lot of money on this thing. If you put something out for 10 bucks, the chances of selling it, if it's reasonably good, is pretty high <laughs> to, all, to almost everybody. So um, so it's a pretty interesting um, opportunity there. So I think that it will be, um, I think you'll probably see a lot of those types of, of, of um, devices there. Also, we were just talking about concerts. I think that concerts are really interesting um, because they, uh, because if you get the camera position just right, you could really feel like you're just sitting in front of somebody who's who's uh, playing to you. So I think that that, that might be a really interesting uh, model there. So, so we'll see. Next question. And it's coming in from me. The question is, have you had any luck using Fiverr to edit or create video graphics? Uh, good, Jason. Um, no. I... I I I have only tried this once, and uh, I wasn't surprised to not be impressed. Um, the best I've used Fiverr for 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 this kind of video stuff is um, you know if they have a core stock animation that you like. Um, generally, my challenge is to try to recreate it. But yeah, for five bucks, uh, they'll they'll crank it up pretty fast. I go ahead, Chris. Hey, so Mitchell, you're talking about like uh, uh, one of these services, Fiverr. You pay an incredibly low amount of money, and somebody does a task for you. That that's yeah, say, what say you had about. a piece of animation, <laughs> character animation you wanted right. to use. So I'll tell you, uh, my friend Keenan, uh, who was involved in our rocket launch, John's rocket launch. Uh, sorry, you're not here today, John. Uh, he has found a lot of success, and I and I I'll find out what it is. Uh, I just texted him. Um, of one of those type services, he uses it for logo creation. And what he does is he sets up a contest. They have a way of setting up a contest. So he gets like 20, 30, 40 different people submitting, sometimes multiple versions. And he says, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a logo for my Jeep and blah, blah, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden he gets an inbox flooded 
with submissions and he can go through and say, like it, like it, like it, like it, like it, hate it. And then some of the people will even allow you to say, can you make the tires bigger and the headlights brighter or whatever? And they give another, and then he offers it up. Essentially what he does is he's paying like 50 bucks. It's a contest and the winner wins like 50 bucks. And I got to say, it works quite well. And I'll find out which service it is. I'm sorry. I don't know off the top of my head. You go to Michael. My one recommendation, I have used it a handful of times, usually for stuff that tends to be a little bit more monotonous that I just didn't have the time to do before a project. Um, But my recommendation would be to be very, very, very specific. Think of it as if you're writing in a chat GPT prompt, be as specific as possible. Um, Because a lot of the things that you kind of maybe already innately know about your project, like for example, if it was a graphic and you know that you're working with a Blackmagic um, product that's very picky about what you're giving it, they don't know those things. So you need to be very specific. A lot of people use Fiverr to save time. And I would say that the first time you use it, you're probably not going to save time just because you are going to have to go back and forth with them. Um, but I will say that if you do find that one person that understands this is what you're looking for and they can reproduce that multiple times, it can definitely be a great time saver. But the first time, you're probably not going to save time. And it's and it's rarely $5. $5 is like the first entry point. And then usually it's $35 or $50 or $100 or whatever to get what you actually want out of it. Um, so the Fiverr is kind of a front sell <laughs> for that process. Uh, but it, it is... Um, I've used it a couple times for just some stuff that I just need to put, I need something to put on, usually a graphic for a 3D object. And I just, at, at, like Michael, I just don't want to spend time on it. Like I just, I'm just like, I just want someone to build something that's cheaper to pay someone $35 than for me to spend, uh, you, know, a, you know, an hour working on it. Go ahead, Chris. I also wanted to point out that the dollar store, everything's a buck 29 now. So people <laughs> lie about prices all the what? time. What? Uh, next question. Brody Hefner from New York City asking, Major League Cricket in the U.S. built on short-form three- to four-hour games is attracting major investment, including a planned 34,000-seat in venue in the Bronx. How might the technology of covering and streaming cricket differ from that of similar sports? You know, I think like baseball, cricket needs a lot of commentary because there's a lot of time <laughs> to, to cover there. Um, and so I think that that's the big thing. And then being able to track that ball and understand. And I think that if you're going to do it in the United States, the big thing that you need to do is assume that nobody knows how it works. So, you know, so the, the main thing is there's a real opportunity there. Uh, we've done this with other sports and cricket is a perfect example. If I was going to do a cricket stream or, or for a season, the big thing is I would bring in some cricket experts and I would have a, a way to do telestration and, and, and a lot of other bits and pieces and really use that time as it's working to really explain to the audience what's happening. Like this is what why this is important. This is what this is. This is how this works. This is how this rule works. This is and then also be able to do some kind of Q&A that people could post questions and so that you can answer questions of, yeah, yeah, that's why they did that. Or this is why. No, no, that, he's not He's not lazy. He just doesn't have to run. <laughs> I'm like, I'm always like, why are they running faster? Like over to my watch cricket. And so the, um, uh, anyway, so it's, uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I worked on the um, first season of the San Jose Sharks uh, broadcasts when they first came to California. And in Northern California, nobody, <clears throat> excuse me, no, uh, well, all but one person, nobody had ever shot or worked on hockey at all. It was quite funny. And this, the Sharks brought in a director. They hired a guy out of New York who knew hockey quite well. And his job was to sort of 
inform everybody on you know how to shoot it, what the strategies were, how they're playing, whatever. There was one guy, one local guy who was actually from the East Coast who knew hockey quite well. And um, I think people learned quite quickly. And, uh, and I'm talking about from the crew standpoint, um, they'll learn quite quickly. It's also, you know, there was another comment about the, um, the bikes, uh, the Tour de France earlier. And I think it's very important that we all recognize that we live in a very big global community. And when we say that sport's boring, we're really limiting our global view. There are people that are immensely, you know, uh, passionate about uh, bicycle racing and cricket and all these other sports that to, well, to many of us seem boring. There, there's subtleties and nuances to everything. And the, 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 the job of a director in live sports is to tell that story in a compelling way that draws you in. And what I'll argue is that what makes those sports really interesting is understanding what's happening, you know, and I think that that's why I think that the, the discussion during the shows, you know, I, again, I think cricket is a great example of something that, that you can, um, you have time, you know, and time is something you don't have. Like we we try to do commentary around basketball and basketball is, it can be done, but there, it's moving so fast the whole time. The only time we had to, to deal with, to talk to what was happening was during the timeouts and during the, um, during the halftime were the only times we could really explain things because there's, you know, because everything else was just, you just had to get to the next thing. It was always moving. It was always, you know, going down that path. And, but with baseball, with cricket, with some of these other sports, you have time to, to talk about those things. And I do agree with you that, that like, for instance, when I did 26 games of basketball and when I entered it, I had no idea what I was looking at and didn't really find that. I was a wrestler in high school. I didn't really know anything about basketball. And, um, and, uh, by the end I was enthralled. Like I love watching basketball now because like, because I understand, I understand the plays. Like I understand the offensive, the defensive plays, the, you know, where they're trying to scrape guys, you know, off, off of the, the, the coverage and, you know, all those things. Cause I had a pro basketball player that used to play for one of the teams explaining how this is all working from the inside. And that made it much more fascinating. So to your point, it's, it's understanding the sport that makes it interesting. Go ahead, Bill. Hundred percent. I will say that one of the challenges I've found, because I've tried to understand cricket two or three times, but every time I was in that period where I was trying to make sense out of it, I would pop it on my television to watch something on YouTube or something like that. And it always looked kind of exactly the same. And what I mean by that is that even in baseball, which is another rules-based game, you get the sense of the bases and you can kind of understand who's on which base and it's now another pitch is going to happen and the pattern is going to change. Same thing with football. You you watch plays develop, you see that pattern. It seemed to me that every time they came back to the base shot in cricket, it looked exactly the same, and I had no idea where anything was in the game based on that. So I think that is a bit of a challenge visually in portraying. I know people are very passionate about cricket and good for you, but I wasn't able to come to Again, it because I think it's of just, that. It's just understanding what it is. And yeah. Americans are very simple because we have baseball and football that are very simple games to watch. <laughs> you know, and basketball and hockey are, you know, and, and uh, but, but I mean, th those are very easy, easy to understand. Um, next question. Next Jeff question Cohen. from, that's I'm okay. Sorry. Was that, were you going to say curling? Uh, next question <laughs> from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Best OBS alternative for Mac, Ecamm Live, Elgato Camera Hub, mm -hmm. upcoming Beat Sheet Studio, or others? By the way, I love watching Curly. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, the uh, I'm a big fan. I mean, I have to admit that I, I like to have external hardware. So I have a ATEM Mini. I don't really like to use software in front of there because what's nice about the external hardware is that I... It, 
I don't have to worry about what else is running on my computer. I can plug it into a lot of different computers and it just works. I don't have to figure out how it's going to integrate with a different piece of software. It just shows up as, a, as the, if, it, if it sees a camera, it's going to see the piece of hardware. So, um, so I admit that I'm not a real, I, I haven't been really successful. Um, the one that I've used, um, you know, when I've used it has been primarily Mimo Live is the one that I've used when, I, when I've done those things. But um, I think Ecamm, we've had a lot of people with a lot of success with Ecamm. Um, I think that uh, less of us have had, I mean, I don't really, under, I don't totally understand mm -hmm, at this point, like what, what, what it's, uh, uh, what it's doing there. Um, the um, Elgato I haven't used. So, so I think those are the ones that, and I haven't used the beat sheet yet. So, so I think that, um, but we know, I know we have a lot of people in our group that are using either Memo or, or, um, some are using OBS and then also um, the Ecamm Live is, is there. So uh, next question. Matt Halverson from Brookings, South Dakota. The Axun Cineview HE is on sale today at B&H for $364. Is it worth picking up or should I spend more and get the Hollyland Mars 400s Pro? I go ahead, Courtney. I don't know. I haven't used either one of these. The uh, The one that's on sale is the HE, which I think is the cheaper version, Axoon Cineview HE. If you look up here, they also have the Cineview SE for $649. So it's more expensive. It's from the same company, and I'm not sure what the difference is. They're both uh, Wi-Fi-based uh, dual-band uh, video transmitters uh, that transmit HDMI in, HDMI out. This one also has a uh, CVS USB out, so it can appear as a webcam if you plug it into a uh, uh, plug it into your laptop or PC. They have uh, about six milliseconds latency. I read the specs on this one, uh, so it looks interesting for that kind of a price. It can transmit to four different receivers uh, at the same time. So they have apps that run on Android and iOS that lets you uh, tune in and decode and put an image up on your phone or tablet, and as well as the receiver. The receiver then can hook up to an HDMI port or you be used as a, uh, a uh, video camera into a laptop. So it looks interesting for that price. It's uh, hard to beat the Holy Land. I'd, I'd buy it and try it. Hey, if it doesn't work, send it back. Right. Yes. I would just, yeah, I would definitely look at it in, in how it works in your environment, you know, because with a lot of these, when you're not spending as much money on the transmitter, it's a lot more sensitive to metal and all kinds of things. So what I would do is I would do exactly what Courtney did is I'd buy it and I'd take very good care of it um, and, uh, and, but test it and see if it, if it actually does, uh, you know, what you expect in the environment that you expect it to work. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. And the other thing to watch out for, I've been on sets where they use something like this. And it can, since it's operating in the unlicensed 2.4 and 5 gigahertz bands, it can wipe out all of your Wi-Fi. So everybody's going to be really mad at you because they can't check their Facebook, you know, when okay. you transfer. Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Chris. Pretty sure it's Hollyland, Courtney, not Hollyland. Although that would be interesting too. Exactly. Um, next question. And it's from Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, right here on our panel. My grandson called on FaceTime last night. It was really excited to share his first stop motion animation. Any thoughts and insight on what I can buy him to set him up for success as he moves forward? YouTube channel to follow. <laughs> Go ahead, Jason. My very favorite app for this is um, from a company that also has an excellent uh, name, Cat Eater LLC. Um, stop motion video is far and away 
just if you ever want to completely waste an afternoon, it's a free app. It's six bucks for, you know, for free, all their things forever. They keep it up to date. And oh, boy, is it fun. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. A pack of multicolored modeling clay and a uh, DVD with Gumby shows <laughs> on it. That should get him started. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Look for a documentary on Henry Selleck and all of his uh, all of his uh, animations. Uh, he's uh, quite a prolific stop motion animator. Did all the big big ones, Night- Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline, and a lot of those. It's very interesting, and you can do stop motion animation with almost any still camera these days. Digital still camera. Um, Kevin Perry, also Parry. Uh, so Kevin Parry um, is uh, on YouTube. He's got probably a couple million followers and he is a stop motion uh, and he, t- he shows behind the scenes. He shows incredible uh, time lapse and stop motion uh, work. So um, Kevin Parry, um, and it, I think it's just uh, that Kevin Parry, um, YouTube slash user slash Kevin Parry. Uh, his work is amazing. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, his first stab at it was uh, actually just moving something and then picking up his tablet and hitting the button and then moving it and picking up the tablet again. So I bought him a little tripod stand, very short tripod for tabletop work. I got him a couple of inexpensive little tiny lights so he could light it with colored gels in it. And and, and probably the nicest thing I got him was I got him a little tiny pelican. You know, to put all of his stuff in. I told him, I go, you know, I always taught you to put your tools away. So, and I and I said to his mom, I said, he'll probably own that Pelican case for twenty or thirty years. It's it's my it's the most pro thing I got him. But uh, it's he was super excited about it. And I got to say, it it's uh it sparks a certain imagination when you see uh, a kid like really just get excited about something. So I'm I'm looking forward to in in inspiring him without uh, overwhelming him. You know, and I think well, that's the, that's the key with with young kids is you don't want to give them too much where they go, ah, I'll never be able to do that because you can do that. We've we've all seen it happen, and uh, but I, I'm super excited for. It. There's actually one on Kevin's uh, uh, YouTube channel that's e- easy stop motion uh, uh, with only an iPhone app or with only a phone app, and he's got like a little whole little video, not ten minute video on that. So I would definitely watch that, um, and he'll show. You know, he he does great DIY. Uh, stop motion. So I, it's probably the the place on YouTube to find, it, to be both inspired and to learn a lot about how to do it. He's got his own um, Discord channel as well. That's just uh, a lot of people that, and people in that Discord channel uh, are uh, pretty high up in stop motion. Uh, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, well, the fun thing about this is it's super easy. You don't need a whole lot of equipment just to be a hobbyist, right? Just start playing with your iPhone camera, but if you want to take it a little more seriously, you just need a tripod, maybe a camera that's a little better, maybe even in getting a, an older, simple, you know, digital SLR or something that's a little better. But again, you can do it with your iPhone. But basically, a, um, a camera, a tripod, some little staging equipment for lighting, and maybe a backdrop, a um, couple books, but you don't need a whole lot. And then you can kind of grow into it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. I believe Boink's software, if I'm correct, has their own. Um, they also have a iStop Motion. So, you know, um, so our own Boinks, they make also Mimo Live. Um, so Oliver has iStop Motion. So I would definitely check that out as well. Um, it's a good little piece of software. I've used it in the past. Uh, next question. 
Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, has a question. Any experience with online equipment rental services that allow idle equipment to be rented out, either as a supplier or a consumer? Good, Michael. I've used both ShareGrid and KitSplit um, for quite some time. I have stopped using KitSplit just because I didn't really get too much traction there. Um, but pretty much nationwide, ShareGrid seems to be the the kind of standard for this type of rentals. And overall, I've had a really good experience, uh, both as a consumer and as a supplier. As a consumer, I would say it's really great for kind of like adding individual pieces to an existing kit that you have, uh, especially some kind of like random items that are otherwise hard to find. But if you are trying to do like a full kit, like you're trying to do like a full red rental with lenses, mounts, um, mounting hardware and all that type of stuff, you might kind of find that some some are low, low quality or haven't been maintained very well. So I would really tread lightly there. Uh, as a supplier, I would say really kind of have your process for check in and check out down pat and make sure that you have all of the insurance and that you verified their insurance, especially for larger rentals. Like I said, I have had overall a really good experience, but I did rent out um, a drone one time in Inspire 2 that uh, ended up getting, they they wrecked it. Um, and that obviously wasn't a super great experience. It was probably a mistake to even try to rent a drone on there in the first place. Uh, but overall, it's I've had pretty good experience with it. Uh, go ahead, Mike uh, Mitchell. Yeah, my friends that are in the uh, rental business called that parking. Uh, so if you have like a uh, um, a Sony Venice that you're not using that often, you can park it. But here's the thing. Um, he also tells me horror stories about what happens to gear that gets rented. And if, like uh, Michael was just saying, isn't properly checked back in, um, cumulative errors and problems and dents and not stolen but misplaced uh, accessories is a big deal. Uh, I'd say in overall, you're going to be on, it's a great idea, but it's going to be a bad practice because you're just not going to like the results. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've owned a lot of equipment in my years uh, and I've never rented any of it out to anyone other than myself because I want to know who's been using it, how they've been using it and what kind of hours have been put on it. And you don't know what state it's on when it comes back in. And and these days with everything being digital with lots of menus and submenus and submenus to the submenus, you don't know what they've gone in and changed. And unless you go ahead and just re erase, you know, the good practice is when a piece of digital equipment comes back, erase it, set it back to the original factory settings uh, and erase everything that's on it uh, is the good best practice to do. If you can do that, uh, that's the best way to handle that. But uh, I, I agree, insurance needs to be uh, covered and check with your insurance provider because a lot of insurance providers, if they find out that you're renting it out to somebody else, won't cover it. It needs a separate uh, type of insurance policy to cover it if you're running it out to third parties. And it's much more expensive. Next question. Next one in from David Brady in New York, New York. SAG After a Rock the City is live streaming from just down on the corner at 44th and Broadway. Any ideas why it's breaking up as much as it is? Wireless? P.S. I can hear it nice and clear from the 11th floor. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, all the picket signs are blocking the microwave signal as they walk back and forth. That's the problem. You know, I think that, I, it, you know, these are the kind of things that if you don't really uh, plan them out, uh, then you don't, it, it, it becomes really hard to get a good live stream. So one of the challenges um, in that specific location is that there is, um, the cell coverage is all over the place. When you add a lot of people to it, they're all using cell coverage as well. And so um, most likely what's happening is they might be using some kind of bonded solution like a LiveView or a PepWave or, or something else like that. 
And those don't work with big crowds or they don't work as well with big crowds. And so they work great in the middle of nowhere or in a lot of places that just have cell. But once you start adding all those people, it's not their fault. They just don't have a, you know, you, the cell sites are being over overwhelmed. Um, it doesn't matter when you're sending texts or you're calling people, sometimes when you're calling them, but when you're trying to stream low latency video, um, uh, it is more problematic. The way to fix that generally is, you know, if we were doing an event like this, we probably would have, we probably would have scheduled a, a uh, sat truck, you know, for this. Usually there was a uh, political person that was having some issues with, uh, organ, you know, rallies like this and I fixed it by just bringing a sat truck. <laughs> it's just like, I'm just going to put a sat truck out there and just point it up. up. Um, suddenly everything worked. Um, so, uh, uh, so sat trucks as well as, um, you know, using the live view as a backup, but a live view as a primary with a large crowd is a pretty risky solution. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. At Times Square is probably the most active RF environment next to being at Cinegear or NAB. Yeah. So you have that and you don't know, you could test it in one minute and then the next minute it's not going to be working for you. So it's yeah. a problem. Yeah. And it looks like a cellular breakup. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm um, seeing there. I just saw it break up a little bit. Good. Bill. Well, I was just curious, Alex, when the live view or something like that, that has an onboard antenna system, uh, would remoting the antenna up on a mast or something like that, even the large stand, give not you really. any additional? No, it doesn't. Not really. Mm. It, it, what you want to do is you want to, what you can do with the live view that we, we've done in the past is you, you into the ethernet of the live view, you give it a, um, you, you then attach it to something like a KA satellite or, or you can, you, you know, attach it to something like a um, Starlink. And so now it's going to get that, that uh, higher quality, um, uh, and you could order even Wi-Fi, you can connect it and you can get that higher quality connection and it will use that as well as the cellular um, to make that happen. One way to fix it is, or to make it better, um, is to often um, also uh, increase the latency. So you just increase the latency to 10 seconds instead of three seconds or two seconds. A lot of times people will get these and they want to be really, really live, so they turn it way down and that makes it less stable as well. But it's hard to know when you're not there what they're doing or how it's working and what, I mean, it could be some kind of point-to-point -point, um, uh, wireless breakup as well. There's just a lot of people and a lot of RF and this is a really, and, and the other thing that makes it hard is with all, all of those people there um, that are, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at it right now. It, it definitely looks like a bandwidth issue because it's all the different cameras. It's happening across different cuts. It tends to, so yeah, it tends to break up when they cut from one camera to the other. So that's a bandwidth issue. Yeah, and, and part of it is is that is that you when you're changing, you know, so all those signs and people moving, that's really a difficult thing. It, it's a difficult thing to manage because it's it, it requires a lot of bandwidth. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, if you look out to the audience there, each one is, is carrying a sign and sign and signs block all that, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the RF is right. line of sight. So those flat signs can reflect off and cause mm -hmm. multipath problems. Yeah, good, Michael. I did pull up the stream here as well. And one observation I'd like to make too, I don't believe that it's a live view. I do think that it is a different cellular bonding solution, maybe through like a PEP link mm -hmm. where it's taking into account, it's trying to give you as much bandwidth as possible, but the encoder isn't aware of the network conditions. Otherwise, you'd probably see like a drop in resolution to try and still get the frames through, but, you know, maybe not at such a high resolution. Uh, so maybe a live view might actually perform better would yeah. be my guess. Could very, very well could be. It's, you know, and, and it's an odd solution to, um, if you really want to get out in front of as many people as possible to use Vimeo as your platform, uh, this, this is, it's got enough people that it would have trended in YouTube. Maybe they don't want to do it because they consider YouTube the enemy or, or, or something like that. But, 
Um, but I feel like they would have had a lot more people watch. They probably have 10 times more people watching if they were doing it on YouTube as opposed to Vimeo. Uh, next question. From Andre Dole in Berlin, the Atomo Zeto Connect seems to be a very affordable solution for monitoring and streaming. If using it as a 1080p backup streaming device to YouTube, what other Atomo services would I need and pay as well? Not sure exactly. I have one right here. Um, this is the this is the Atomos Connect. What I can tell you is that it advertises that it can handle um, UVC, and I cannot get it to see any UVC camera. <laughs> so, so I haven't figured out exactly. Like it's there. There's there's USBs, but I tried it first with the um, uh, with the Link 360, and the Link 360 just turns on and off. And then I tried it with some other new USB cameras, and they haven't worked. Now I'm still going to test it with. Um, you know, just HDMI out of a camera into this and see if it actually um, is a good little, to do, to your point, um, streams well. Um, but that, that that's the only other thing I can think of using it for. And it could be useful in that in that sense of being able to jump on a Wi-Fi and be able to stream directly. Um, so uh, still looking at it, but but it's but it's not good at doing what I bought it to do. So I'm still trying to decide whether I'm going to keep it. I've got a couple more, another week or so before I have to send it back. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, your UVC problem could be a power issue, you know, because it's got to supply power to that uh, uh, Link 360, uh, 360 Link. But it wasn't and, just the uh, Link 360. The I haven't, I haven't put the Brio, I haven't put the Brio in yet. But um, yeah. the, uh, uh, but yeah, I, every every webcam I have in my office, and I haven't again. I don't. I'm trying to find a Brio. I know I have a, I have a pile of them down at the office, but in my office, I don't have a lot of them. Um, but I haven't been able to get anything to show a picture yet. So on any so it's supposed to be webcam <laughs> and if it is a power issue it should be able to handle that kind of power if it's going to advertise that it's going to do it so so anyway we'll see you running it off the batteries or ac power supply ac i mean it's it's a usb uh see, a usb uh, power, power pd in input mm -hmm. so i've been using yeah that so i may try to put put a battery in and see if it works better I, it is a standard like sony like 970 battery or 770 battery that that i have plenty of so i'll, I'll i might play with that as well um, next question. Funsak Dorji from Dharamshala, India, asking, Greetings from India. Just learned that the college where we are going to deploy the XR12 with 8M SDI external ISO has Crestron DSP1283. I have no experience with DSP. Could you please explain the workflow with the above gear? Grateful, as always. Crestron, and I don't know if we're... Uh... I'm just pulling this up. Um, this is a, oh, it's a signal processor. Um, and I have to admit, I, do, I am not familiar with this piece of software so I'm, or hardware, so I'm going to try to come up with this uh, relatively quickly here. Um, so this is a Dante, it's a 12 by 8 Dante processor. It's, I, I'm guessing that it's... Uh, Oh, so it's 12 inputs um, and eight outputs. Um, it also has, it supports uh, Dante um, networking. So I imagine, oh, it's got little, so it's interesting. So it, it has blocks. It's using blocks on the, you know, for the in and out. So you, you kind of have to build your wiring for it. So, you're, you know, the, you could build that out. So those blocks will, you just got to solder them, you know, um, in either the, the blocks themselves, you can just screw them in um, if you want to put them in there, but you can get soldered versions of those and then you put them into a XLR to, to get that out uh, or balanced. I'm going to guess that it's probably, I don't know if it has mic in line, it's probably just line, but um, and what it, you know, it's, it is a, um, it has, I, 
it looks like IO. It um, it does have signal processing, but I'm not as um, it does mic in line uh, inputs Dante. It'll do VoIP, which I which I'm not sure. Maybe it might be doing some kind of like SIP two sixty three or something like that. The um, but it is a uh, but it also yeah it also supports. So it's it's kind of an all purpose. I mean, this is a very much of a um, I guess what I would say is it's kind of a very corporate, like in, this is what a, a, uh, someone who install, you know, kind of, a, um, someone installs stuff would, would put in Crestron, Crestron. The thing about Crestron is, is that when you get it all set up and someone who knows how to use Crestron gets it all set up, it works amazingly well. If you're hacking through it, it's a little piece of hell. <laughs> like, like, like if you're just trying to change it for every show or move things around or whatever, it's not really what I believe Crestron is really built for is constantly changing how it works. So if you're going in there to change it, um, I would say, and you haven't used it before, um, I'd be careful. Like it's, it is a, uh, um, it's, it's really, I find that Crestron, I will say I work in some studios where they push a button and it's all, it changes everything in the entire studio to be ready for the next show. Um, and it's magical. Like, it's just like this button and it just happens. But, but, an, but an integrator came in and set that all up and they got it all working. And as soon as you start going off the, the rails, you know, you go, I'm going to wander off. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to rewire something. I'm going to reprogram something. You're now never, never land with Crestron. Like it's just, it, it, it's not really built for that. And so it's really built for some, a, a professional that uses Crestron to set it up for you and make it work. And, but if you change anything in it, it may not work as well again, maybe ever. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, that's been my experience at Crestron. Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana is here considering picking up an old HV 20 camera for clean HDMI out and 20 times zoom. What else might be workable with sunlight for under $250? Zoom preferred over fixed lens. I go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I'm sorry, not Mitchell, uh, Michael. Uh, I'd be really careful with the HV20. Uh, that is a really, really old mini DV camera. And a lot of times HDMI outputs on those are only going to be for playback of already recorded footage. Uh, for that price range, I'd recommend looking at the Canon Vixia series, R600. I was able to find used for a little bit under that um, or the Sony CX450. Um, similar scenario, much more modern cameras and we'll get you that clean HDMI out. Um, I'd look at those. I was like, my HV20s are still worth $250. <laughs> I was like, they're sitting in some box somewhere. Um, you definitely can take a live feed out of them, and they're actually not that bad. Um, I used to travel around the world with HV20s uh, 20 years ago, and um, and I uh, had them in my studio as overhead cameras. Um, they, they they do work okay um, as far as those things. They are an interlace output, though I do believe you can, if I remember correctly, you can do... Um, PSF out of those. I think you can set that up. It's a weird little little setup there, but I think that they will do that. But um, yeah, they're 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 good little cameras. That I, I my first little studio was on HV twenties. I go to Courtney. Yeah, I agree with the Canon Vixia. They um, I have a bunch of the HF R eight hundreds. They're a little bit more expensive. Uh, there's four nineteen new, but I you can get them sometimes for around 270, 275 bucks. You can find them on eBay. They're nice and compact. They have HDMI out, although it's mini HDMI, so you can need an adapter from mini to full size. But the HDMI looks good. The autofocus is good. Uh, you know, for a general purpose uh, video camera to feed your ATEM or something, it, it works okay. Color, color science isn't very good, but, you know, other than that, it'll give you a good image. Next question. 
Um, I've got another question. Am I the only one that finds B&H's website the perfect place to search for gear and compare specs? Uh, I do that a lot. Uh, I don't know if it's the perfect place. I mean, sometimes I try to go to the website, but I will, to your point, oftentimes I go back to B&H because the website is too, it's over-designed and it's too hard to find the specs for a given piece of gear. And I'm like, I'm just going to go to B&H because it'll just have it in the specs section. <laughs> like, like, I just can't work my way through the website. So I do agree with you that sometimes they do it better uh, by standardizing it than the companies themselves. Go ahead, Bill. Now, the best place is to fly to New York and go to the B&H flagship store and, and give yourself like three days and uh, get a hotel close by and just you'll have so you have to, much fun. You have to give your friend your wallet, though. Like, just give, <laughs> just give somebody the wallet. <laughs> And they're going to be the adversary. They're going to argue against you buying anything. And you have to, you have to make the case because oh, it's so, the B&H store in, in New York is so expensive. It's so expensive to visit. I mean, it, it, there's a certain amount of cost to get to fly there and, and the hotel. You know, so the flight across country and the hotel minor minor expenses <laughs> you know, like those are those are like those are like that's just, a that's thousand like, dollar warm-up that's not even it, it's not even the appetizer compared to the meal like once you're there you're like oh it's I the amuse I gotta, you know like there's things that i didn't even know existed that i now have to buy going chris yeah, i was in new york on a shoot once and uh me and my lighting guy went in there and uh he had a question about he wanted to buy a little wireless mic for his youtube channel great youtube channel by the way the He's a gaffer. Anyway, uh, and he went to the counter to ask some questions. I'm like, ah, oh, this is just going to be a nightmare. And the guy at the audio counter was immensely knowledgeable, super patient, pulled out and let him touch and fiddle with everything. And he would point out things that nobody would know until you own something for like a year. He goes, well, actually, let me show you how this works. And he'd like, diddle fiddle a hundred buttons and all of a sudden, you know, it would act and behave differently. It was incredible. And I think that uh, David Brady, I know you're listening. I think you need to pick a date and have an East Coast, at least anybody else who wants to have a, a B&H weekend, you know, junket uh, meetup, oh, an office hours B&H meetup. It yeah. would be great. It's very expensive, though. Again, yeah. it just it, and what makes it expensive is exactly what Chris said: is that everybody there knows what they're talking about. So you're used to going to stores where no one knows anything about what what they're talking about, and you walk into the store and every person knows every camera, every whatever the section is that they're standing at. Um, they voice. know that section exceptional, exceptionally well. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a weekend meetup may not be a good idea because they are closed on Saturday. So yeah, don't plan do on, it on Sunday. Spending time on Sunday's Saturday a good day. There. Yeah, yeah Sunday's not, okay. a good point. not Saturdays. Yeah, good. Uh, uh, and you got to pay attention to all the holidays. Um, Mitchell? I'm yeah, sorry. As you're narrowing down what you want, because they've got everything there, um, you might end up calling them. And uh, I've called them before and said, well, can I do this with this? And he goes, what? <laughs> you want to do that? Are you crazy? You want this? You know, and yeah. it's, uh, it's amazing whether in person or over the phone, you can get great advice. There you go, Bill. I think we've identified, though, a new job. David, you should do a second uh, side gig as a B&H Sherpa, where you just lead adventures through B&H and tell people what sections and introduce never, them to the right people in the right I never <laughs> thought of B&H as a tourist. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're going to be AV. What, we haven't started doing AV tourism yet, like take you to the best expendable places. And if you're in L.A., we'll take you to Film Tools and we'll take you to uh, on lo a location sound. And, and uh, yeah, that... JCX, yeah, Sammy's Camera. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, next, <laughs> next question. From Tlaloc uh, Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. We talked a lot about AI, and I can totally see how it can make short work of mundane tasks. What I'm curious about is, will we know if the technology goes to a level of true creative? If that line in the sand is crossed, will we notice? Go ahead, Chris. I think Tlaloc, you know, the creator of the Tlaloc Traversal, I think what you need to do is to create a test, kind of like, what is it called the Turing test? The tu- Turing test for Turing robots? Test, yep. Yeah. Create create the test. And, and I think it's an interesting problem. Like, like you're going to supply a series of questions or inspirations to some sort of an AI, and then, you know, does it yield something that already exists, or does it yield something that is uh, u- unique? Uh, but I, I definitely something has to be some sort of metric has to be uh, figured out, designed. All right, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think Talalik brings up a good point because um, in my business of voiceovers or on the radio, um, there's a line where, yeah, I can read back uh, the copy and do it a a fairly uh, good interpretation, but can it sound like a personality? And that sort of delves into the creative line that uh, that Talalik's mentioning there. I don't think so. I mean, not in this decade. And I noticed the question came up yesterday about uh, radio uh, personalities being replaced by it. I think that, you know, if you're a news reader or the weather or stuff like that, yeah, you're going to get replaced. Look for another job. Become a plumber. But um, as far as being a personality, don't think they're there yet. Good. Courtney? Yeah, with generative AI, uh, creativity is not the pro- is not an issue. It's the problem because it's a little too creative. Because uh, it's creating a lot of stuff that's not accurate. It's hallucinating. And hallucination is just really it being creative and making up things uh, that don't exist. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're writing fiction, it's great because it can be creative and it can take you and uh, give you suggestions and, uh, uh, you know, a, a way a story could travel that you may never have thought of before. So in that respect, it, it can be very creative. Uh, don't depend on it to be accurate if you're trying to have it summarize world history or something. But uh, the problem is uh, it's so creative now, they don't know how to rein in its creativity to make it more accurate. That's one problem. Go ahead, Bill. The filter I put this through is my my evolution as somebody works in video with type. Uh, at first, I just copied other people who put type on screen and considered that good enough. And then eventually, as my career progressed, I started working with uh, people who knew understood typesetting better, and the type got much better. Then I started working with art directors who did this for a living in large agencies, and my understanding got even better. And I, you can't. You know, if you just follow rules and say this pair should be kerned like this, you can get decent results. But boy, you get a, a real serious type designer or art director and they throw up an image and you go, that just feels exactly right. And it was because they looked at a hundred, they knew in their head the a hundred thousand typefaces and knew what was the right thing to use in every different situation. And they came up with not just one, but three beautiful designs for the screen. I don't think AI is ever going to get to that point. And it's that that human judgment of a very complex thing based on your creative experience over time. The mechanical stuff, absolutely. And that'll just be wiped away. But that's my two cents about it. 
I mean, from a creative perspective, I use it to think a lot, like just to think about things. I throw things at the wall um, all the time just to see what it will produce. Um, and sometimes I find it, it's not so much that I want to get, I want what comes out of it verbatim, but it gets me thinking about a thought process that's there. So I think that that's how I'm using it currently. Um, I do think that it will, it will eat up about somewhere between 50 and 80% of the, of the more rote stuff is going to be something that you will have the AI do. The, the main thing is, is that at the higher end of, of production or creativity, uh, taste is something that takes, I, I still think it takes um, life experience. Like you're making decisions on things that, that, you know, when I build a great team for a production, every person that I bring in is not doing what I told them to do. They're doing something better than I thought I would do. You know, they're thinking through things for me and they're problem solving. Every person in in that group is um, problem solving their area based on all kinds of life experience and things you're not going to find on the internet, which means that generative AI wouldn't know it. Um, so, so I think that there is um, somewhere in the future, it could be doing a lot more, but I think it's going to be a, a lot longer than people think. People have these long lists on Twitter of all these businesses that are going to be out of business in three years. And I think I'm as uh, caught up as anybody where you see what's going to happen and you think it's going to happen tomorrow and it turns out it's going to happen 10 years from now. <laughs> so, so, so I think that uh, it's going to take time, a little bit more time. It's doing amazing things now. Um, I, I, pr I make on a daily basis, I make something on on uh, a mid journey that I could put on a wall. And I'd be, I think, oh, this is really cool. But usually if you look really, really closely, the eyes are weird or something, there's some kind of possessed something. There. So you have to be kind of, you really have to look at it closely. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a crazy, crazy thing. Next question. Next question from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Can an Apple Studio display be switched from using a stand to a Visa mount post-purchase, seeing conflicting info online? Go, Jason. Oh, please don't do that. Uh, yes, Backroomer says it can be done for a fee, and um, nowhere does anywhere do, does anybody say what that fee is. So, yeah, technically an Apple certified <laughs> provider can do it, but don't do that. Just get the visa. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Talalok Lopez, Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. As the theatrical model is pushed into the past. What model of compensation seems viable for the new content delivery methods? Are royalties a thing of the past? Good, Chris. I don't know that royalties are a thing of the past, but I think that the heyday of royalties is probably past. I think, you know, if you look at, you know, what the kids who did Friends, you know, what they were making, you know, a million an episode or and plenty in reruns and syndication, I think a lot of that stuff is going to absolutely change. I know that if I'm a roofer, I don't get money from you every time it rains. I got paid to put the roof on. Hey, that'd be a really good idea though. Wouldn't it? It would Wouldn't be a be great idea if you could make that happen, but it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. And just like, you know, in the 60s and we were talking about this uh, Courtney a couple weeks uh, last week or whatever about when was the change where television syndication meant, oh, I'm going to get paid forever. Because we know that, you know, stars of the 50s and early, at least the early 60s, I think maybe most of the 60s, you know, you did an episode of Star Wars and you wore a big green suit or whatever and you got paid to work, but you didn't get paid to, to, not, to not work. And that changed somewhere along the way. And I think that was brilliant negotiating uh, on, the, act, on the, the acting unions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to be able to get that. But at some point, people look at it and they go, 
hey, you're done working. I don't want to continue to pay you. Uh, I, I only get paid for the days I sit at my computer. Uh, and I, I realize why they want to get paid. I realize they don't work 365 days a year. I get that. But I think the heyday of royalties are, are over for sure. Good, Gordy. Yeah, I think there's probably just going to be a, uh, a higher negotiated upfront uh, wage, which is one of the things they're fighting for now is better wages, uh, which is for their daily wages, but also residuals. The problem is the market has become so stratified with, uh, you know, streaming and still DVDs and, you know, other kinds of marketing, you know, all the cable television networks that are playing reruns of television shows from the 50s, you know, uh, it's hard to apply metrics to that to reimburse people to to calculate royalties it would cost more than the royalty. It costs more to calculate the royalty than the royalty is going to be to the individual performer once it starts being stratified like that. So they have to come up with a different type of uh, wage model to compensate somebody. Actors have the problem, of course, because, you know, their likeness is on camera. So, uh, you know, they can only... Uh, get paid for that likeness and that performance for so many years. And then their face changes and gets older and, you know, the roles change and they can't be compensated anymore, or they can be overexposed and an actor can be overexposed to the point that no one will hire him because, Oh, it's that guy again, you know? So uh, people that write in the creative, you know, writers have the ability to just develop a pseudonym and write under the pseudonym. No one knows the difference. And they can continue a career for a long time, even in a different market. Whereas actors whose faces are hanging out there uh, have a little bit more of a problem. So that's why one of the reasons that uh, uh, residuals and you know aftermarket consideration was made uh, to prevent them from you know, going online and, and doing one thing and uh, never being able to act again. There you go, Bill. So at Comic-Con this year, um, after one of the things my friends who I was there with said, come on, meet us, we're in Hall H. Hall H, uh, people don't know, is a gigantic theater, and it's where the, the big Marvel reveals and things like that happen. And they, most of that was gone this year because of the strikes. But anyway, I heard uh, that William Shatner is going to be there. So Captain Kirk, and it, he actually wasn't because of the strike. He, and, and also I think his health, he's 93 now. But one of the most fascinating things is they were debuting a documentary that's coming about out about his life. And part of it that I watched was him saying, after Star Trek, because this was 63 when it started, I, there were no residuals. When I, and three or four years after that, I was dead broke. And he talks about watching a space launch on a black and white TV when he was living in his truck in Texas, post-starring in Star Trek. Uh, without this residual compensation process, he was literally broke. And it wasn't until there was a resurgence of interesting interest and Star Trek went into syndication, which gave it a second life, that he was able to parlay that into making some money by con convention attendances and things like that. So there really was a serious problem in the early days of people not being compensated for these things that culturally just were vastly successful and they got nothing in response. So that's one of the things, that kind of story was why residuals started happening, I believe. And it went through that period where it was robust and people like the cast of Friends made fortunes because they had a, a you know, a stake. I do think eventually 
the fact that we're in a system where computers can track micro things, I do think some sort of micro participation thing where if you're on the crew or whatever, you have point, micro points or something like that, that the level of a success that goes to the extremes of something like Star Trek that you your work helped create could provide at least a reasonable lifetime return because your work was so successful without damaging the entire rest of the compensation structure for everyone. And I hope they get to that point because I'd like to see as many people as possible participate if it doesn't change the basic economics of everything. Thank God, Chris. Two super quick things, Alex. I see you locked the question. Uh, number one, Shatner is known as being really hardcore about don't take my picture without paying me. And he's doing what all actors should do at the beginning of their career. He's he's a hardcore negotiator. If you can't say no, you're not actually negotiating. One of the things all of the actors and anybody who works in this industry has to realize that the streaming world, which is part of you know what is causing a lot of this uh, problem, is a... We have to remember that when you broadcast a TV show in the old days over an antenna, millions of people can watch it for the cost of one broadcast out. In streaming, your success actually costs money to the people streaming the data. The more people who watch a show on Netflix, the more times Netflix has to stream that same data. And so... Is the business model is being turned upside down because of streaming, but it's also being turned upside down for the streamers because their success, your success on that show, actually costs them money because they have to stream that data every single time somebody wants to watch it. I think part of the streaming problem is, is that streamers don't know if they're making any money. They don't know if they can make money at this. Like long they term. probably can't. So they probably can't. And so the, the, the companies that are best positioned are Amazon and Apple because they don't have to. Like they're selling hardware and other things and, and everything else. The, the ones that are, that are the most uh, at risk are the content, you know, the ones that are really leaning into content um, are the ones that have the most at risk. And so it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, my biggest concern with, the strike is mostly that it will do the same thing that COVID did, which is it'll start breaking spells. You know, there's certain spells of things that we do. Like, for instance, I, I work on launch events, and I'm, and I'm afraid that all these events like Oppenheimer and everything else did really well without a launch event. And I'm afraid that that lesson will be taken back and said, hey, we don't need to do launch events anymore. We don't need that PR thing. We don't need that. You know, like there's a whole bunch of things they may go, well, we don't need all of that stuff to, to pull this off. Um, so that's the other. Uh, I'm afraid that they'll start learning learning new lessons or l- new kinds of content. Um, that that are not related to this. I mean, everybody. There's always a a reaction. So we'll see how that goes. That's that's the concern I have. Is is the ancillary stuff? The the market will change because there's no content. Um, next question from Douglas Carmichael. Many industries are recognizing the unique advantages that neurodivergence brings to a task like software quality assurance. Have there been similar initiatives to our industry to bring neurodivergence into the fold? I don't know of anything uh, really specific to that. There's a link link here, which I haven't seen before. So, uh, yeah, I'd have to look at it a little bit more. But I don't know anything specific other than a lot of folks are able to work in this industry that are neurodivergent because they don't have to, you know, they can work at home. <laughs> they can do things that are uh, special, you know, that they can uh, make those things happen. So I think that's the only place that I've seen that. Um, next question. Next question in from Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. I appreciate how well-versed in Star Trek the panel is. With that as a background, should we not encourage and support creative, if not successful, attempts at getting us to holodecks? I'll go ahead, Jason. 
Why do you think we are so obsessed with Unreal Engine and the virtual <laughs> stuff that we've seen happening, you know, around the Mandalorian and, you know, with, with Nick Jeshishin? That is our version of yeah. a holodeck. So, uh, yes and yes. Thank you, Mitchell. Yeah, first of all, uh, Vic, uh, you know, live long and prosper. Um, what stays in the, what happens in the holodeck stays in the holodeck. To be honest with you, I think that the, uh, the holodeck concept uh, in a script is a bit of a writer's cheat. Um, I don't, uh, I don't respect that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. When they get the virtual stage to the point where it can actually synthesize props that the people can hold in their hands, then that will be the some, most similar thing to a holodeck, you know, finding uh, the whole idea concept behind the holodeck is, is that you could create a hologram that you could touch, feel and interact with in a physical way, which is of course, not it defies all the laws of physics uh for a visual media unless you had something that uh you know would would may be made up of a you know a thousand different little moving parts that could form into any shape or so and had an led on the end of each little point so it could uh, take on any appearance and form any shape that would be really cool and hook that up to the computer for hand props there are gloves that will that you can feel. They'll they'll tighten where you're touching. They'll something. let you feel, but they don't give you the physical device no. that you. Well, when you have when you have goggles on, and that these are not even new. This is like 25 year old technology. When you have goggles on, um, and you put these gloves on, you can sit there, and, and when you see it hitting in front of you, it is it feels like you're touching it. So it's it's been around for a while. It just hasn't been uh, hasn't been commercially uh, viable. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is back. Uh, what recording format would they probably use for an event on the scale of Metallica in Texas? Would it be a rack of AJA key pros or a similar class device, or would it be a higher-end product? Um, yeah, probably be similar class to key pros to record all the ISOs. They probably record all the cameras um, on, on uh, external decks, um, that usually primary and backup. They might use a software recorder as well. Um, they, uh, Metallica may also be recording, uh, most likely recording all the tracks, all the audio tracks. Um, I think that they said in the video that they had, that they have 192 tracks, um, is the, in the back behind the scenes video. And he said, if you wonder why is there's four drum sets in there. And he says, and each drum set takes as 30 mics. <laughs> so, so he said that's, so that's 120 of those, of those channels are just the drum sets. So, um, it's good behind the scenes. I would, I would definitely check that out. And a reminder that you can, of course, we're going uh, a whole second hour with, uh, with Q and a, um, we've got some great experts here a great conversation. So if you, if you want to throw some more questions in before the end of the hour, you're more than welcome to next question. From Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. Alex, on Sunday, you talked about a lesson with a professional calling a show and talking through it afterwards. Is this available material? And if yes, where can I see that? Yeah, we did that um, with Marcia Kerrigan, and uh, that was live. It was just when you had to be there <laughs> to, to do that. We're, I'm working on, I'm trying to work with partners to do it again. So we there's a venue near my house. Uh, and I'm trying to see, hey, can we bring cameras and have people who want to train to learn to do the cameras and everything else? Um, we just want to shoot the video. You know, we'll give you back the footage. We just want to train people. And then we would try to get Marcia or some of the other folks to call the shows. Um, uh, and so that we can train both camera operators as well as have everybody here watch them. Um, and I'm also trying to angle. There's a big empty building right next to a concert venue. And I'm trying to take that over. I'm always trying to take over buildings, but anyway, uh, to run concerts out of. So we'll see if that um, becomes viable at some point. 
Um, but but yeah, we're we're trying to figure out how to um, uh, you know how to get a space where we could be doing shows all the time. Uh, we have figured out with what we did last year, a little over a year ago, that we were very capable of cutting shows over Zoom. You know, like it was actually a doable thing. So um, so we hope to keep on taking that R and D down the path. Next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, what percentage of your budget do you dedicate to client relationship? Uh, I don't, I don't have any budget to client. I mean, I don't have a budget to the client relationship. I mean, I just try to be as responsive as possible to our clients, but I, I don't have a specific uh, budget connected to it. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I was just going to say, uh, if anything, it's more of a negative connotation. If I have a really tough client, um, I might throw an extra 10% in there if I can because right. of the aggravation and extra time it's going to take to get the job done. And go ahead, Courtney. Oh, you could allocate some of your marketing uh, a budget to, you know, sending Christmas cards, sending a gift basket if it was a particularly large production and it went really well or, you know, just something to smooth over that client to get them to think about you in the future, you know, so you could put a small amount of money. I've never done anything like that, but uh, some people have. I've, I've received nice cards and nice little gifts from people that have worked with me on, on projects. So maintaining a client relationship, you can spend some money on it. I did, I did, um, uh, anytime I was out with my clients, I would always pay, you know, like I would always, <laughs> I would always make sure that I was, I was the one paying. Um, the, um, but the, with, when I was in, uh, with Pixelcore, there were three or four clients that spent a lot of money with us. And I did, I did take them to Alexander Steakhouse, which is in, uh, and we'll just say that the steak, each steak is like $350. It's all Wagyu. And, um, and so the night was expensive, but I enjoyed it too. It was good for me too. So it was, <laughs> So it was, it was a good, it was a good night to do. Uh, December was usually a lot of red meat. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Last decade or so, I have taken my top five clients of the year. I usually do this, you know, in that um, week between Christmas and New Year's. And um, with a pen, with my hand, write them a thank you note. And um, it's strange, but it's, it's bizarrely um, analog and, and they really like it. Yeah. Next question. Next question from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Does anyone know if you can adjust audio on Instagram Reels? I'm trying to upload a video with dialogue, but would love to put Instagram's music under it. I don't know if you can. We had the same question around TikTok in the past where it's at a certain level. I believe inside of the TikTok um, app, you can duck the audio, but I'm not sure about Instagram's reels of whether you could do that. And I can see why. So the reason if you're listening, if you don't use Instagram's, if you don't apply it to the video, then it, it won't necessarily clear it or won't clear it. If you embed it in your editor and do it the way you wanted to do it, it's the problem is it's always designed around um, people who uh, are less sophisticated and are just, just want something to turn on. Go ahead, Bill. Jack, if you're not, if you just need to do this function and nothing else, you want the voiceover to pop out, there's a little program from the Conversation Network called Levelator, and it is kind of a brick wall, yeah, the, turn whatever the signal yeah, up the to problem, 100%. He can't, can't do that <laughs> because he, he can't, he has to apply the music in the app. He cannot because it's it's the way that the, the copyright works. So he has to take that, he, what he wants to do is use the Instagram's music underneath it, 
but it's but it has to be applied if it's like TikTok, and I'm, I'm a little less you know it's not you can't he can't bind it that's the problem he can't do it in his own app that's the that's the issue is that um it has to be applied in the instagram reels in in, in the app and he and then he can't find the control for it which i don't think that there is um, yeah so, my point was just but, that you'll it'll take you, your voiceover track and maximize it totally uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you could pound your voice. To your point, you could compress right. it heavily, but it won't. It won't make any difference to to that. It'll just make it really loud and probably hard to watch. Um, next question, John Fisher in Oklahoma City asks: Did the Strange New Worlds Lower Decks crossover bring you joy? I uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Uh, John's talking about Star Trek, and uh, Strange New Worlds is uh, is a hit. It's a smash hit for uh, Paramount. Um, Lower Decks is a completely different beast, and to put them together, I think, was uh, not faithful to the uh, the canon of Star Trek. And if you think that's bad, rumor has it that this Thursday's release of the next Strange New Worlds episode is going to be a musical. Come on! <laughs> They're doing it as a musical. Mitchell Good. completely stole my thunder. Yes, it is going to be completely musical and... I, I'm not sure if I can't wait, but also I kind of can't wait. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm really a big fan of musicals as long as they don't sing at all in the musical. Then I think it's great. Um, yeah, go ahead. Corey. Hamilton was awesome. You know, Hamilton's the one exception. Hamilton and The Greatest Showman are the only exceptions to that rule. Though, that I really enjoy those movies, um, but uh, but in general, I would prefer. Not so much singing. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, they're me. messing with the Star Trek canon here. That's just yeah. not a done. Yeah, go ahead. I've got uh, I've got two cautionary words for you. Cop rock. Look it up. It was a horribly <laughs> failed TV series where they it was a musical version Steven of a police show. Bochco. Yeah, the, I mean the the real danger of doing any of these things is exactly what Mitchell's talking about. When you disrespect your core fans by doing something silly. Um, oftentimes it breaks the spell and they may not come back. So we'll, we'll see if they, we'll see what happens. Next question. Next question from Robert Green in Los Angeles. Bill, thanks for sharing the great photos at Comic-Con. What gear did you use? So everything you saw yesterday was shot with an iPhone 14 Pro, uh, the smaller one, not the bigger. I spent about two years uh, working with that iPhone uh, on just a little monopod. It is so much nicer not to have to carry a DSLR, which I did in my first years. And it, the computational photographer gets some, this is one of the shots from yesterday. I mean, if you know how to use it, it really is capable of stunning imagery. You just have to pay attention to all of its modes and understand how to work it. But yeah, everything you saw from that was done on an iPhone. Next question. Next question from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. What makes dollies for tripods so expensive? The Sackler ones almost cost a third of the tripod just for three beams, a joint in the middle, and tree wheels. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, the tripod heads are really the most expensive part, and durability. You know, those, uh, uh, those legs are a lot of times made out of carbon fiber, and that's kind of expensive, or, or uh, aluminum, uh, which is kind of expensive. And getting uh, uh, joints that lock and unlock easily is. But he's looking at the expense of the of the actual uh, dollies. Tripod, it's the dollies. Dolly. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what he's. 
That's what he's complaining about. Is how much? I'm not sure costs. about the Sackler dollies, but yeah. the Chapman dollies are quite expensive because there's a lot of hydraulics involved mm-hmm. and they're quite heavy. They're made out of you know cast aluminum. They have to be heavy, otherwise you know if you sit on them, they'd fall over. So uh, and as far as the heads go, uh, fluid heads is is a kind of an art to create a smooth pen and tilt. Uh, it's quite a bit of a design, and that's why those are about three or four thousand dollars for a fluid head. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've got a $4,000 Sockler Flotec right behind me. Um, it's carbon fiber. Uh, you can get wheels for it for extra dollars, uh, but it's probably going to be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, but I think he's talking about the, the dolly. <laughs> so the dolly well, part. Well, the dolly could be yeah, with that, that, if I got so, it. So what makes them, I mean, a, a third of a tripod cost is, is actually you're doing pretty well. Um, that's a pretty inexpensive dolly. Um, that's probably just some roller skate wheels with some, some stuff that's there. Precision. Uh, the precision of what it has to do generally is what makes it more expensive. What makes them expensive is that they can't, you know, they have to roll very nice and smoothly over something. So it's getting um, whatever that, whatever you're using as a dolly sp- um, face, those rails have to be just right. The wheels on them have to be just right. And it just takes more time to put that together. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I would say, Stefan, uh, go go try and make your own. I mean, I, I'd say that somewhat facetiously, facetiously, there are many DIY solutions, and Courtney, he's not talking about a fisher. He's talking more like a spreader with some casters on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, what Alex said, precision is what you're paying for and how well it operates and can you fold it easily and stick it in the truck. And, yeah, but there's plenty of DIY solutions. Go try one of those. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, they're like you said, there's a lot. I've, I've worked on sets where a lot of grips have put together their own DIY solutions with some skateboard wheels and, and a piece of channel aluminum that holds, uh, uh, you know, that holds the tripod uh, and, and some uh, standard uh, PVC pipe as track, you know. But that stuff bends. It's not precision. It makes noise. <laughs> it never know. really works. <laughs> it, it never really works. And, and a lot of those uh, PVC, a lot of those urethane wheels, you know, if it's a heavy camera and it's sitting on those wheels, you go away to lunch, you come back, they have a flat side now on the wheels. So when you push it, it's going to go thump, 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 <laughs> and yeah. a bump along. So there's a lot of consideration that goes into this uh, design. What's interesting is, is that because they're hardware and because there's a lot of competition, especially from China, um, those dolly, those dolly, systems are generally not much more expensive than it takes to make them. <laughs> you know, like it's the, 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 the margins are not big on dolly systems because there's a lot of competition. Uh, next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama. How do, you get the, how do you get your foot in the door for streaming services, but doing a lot of work for free and or low price, but are not recurring? You know, I think that it's, uh, it, it depends on how you're putting it together. So, um, you know, I, you, the hard part really is that you have to invest enough that it looks like a, and I don't know what yours looks like. So yours may look, but how it, how you come across. So, um, a lot of it is a picking the right people and sometimes you have to be in the right place. Um, uh, but the other thing is, is it's a matter of being, uh, tight, you know, so it's, it's how the kit looks when you show up, what time you show up, how you interact with folks, um, how you build out. And some of that just takes practice. I mean, I think, I probably did. I mean, because we were doing stuff for our own internal needs for streaming first. So we probably did a hundred shows before someone paid us for it. You know, like we were, you know, but we were doing them internally, internal streams. And so we were doing these shows. Uh, I don't know how I would have been able to get those, get the paid shows without that hundred. Like, you know, without a hundred shows, 
that I did before that, I don't know how, because when I showed up, it was a pretty big company and we had been doing some other stuff for them and it was a pretty big company and, and they just, and we didn't screw up the first one. Um, we, we did, we, we weren't perfect for the first couple. Um, but, but, you know, not screwing up the first one is super important. And when I say that, it means that it runs smoothly. They see it on the internet. It doesn't break up. It, they feel relaxed. They feel like you know what you're doing. So, you know, uh, you know, all of business and pretty much all of life is a confidence game. People having confidence in you, you know, that, that you can do what you say you're going to do. And so part of that, if even if you get the pro- process done, if they were worried most of the time that it wasn't going to work or if it was stressful for them, they still may not come back. They may go, this is dangerous. Like one of the things with live streaming is, um, I'm usually pretty careful of only telling the client what they need to know about what's going on. Um, you know, if I know that it, I think it's achievable, but it's a little messy right now, I'm not going to necessarily expose all that because, you know, this is a messy business, you know, like, <laughs> and so, uh, a lot of it is, but, you know, having a kit that's easy to set up, having it just get up there, have all the little things that you need. So that, and it's hard when you're getting started because you don't have the money to buy the things that you need. Um, and so it, it can be really tricky. This is a really hard business to kind of turn in because it is somewhat, um, you know, if you're, if you start off with all software and doing all those other things, a lot of times it's going to break, you know, like if you're using OBS or, or other things like that, it's going to break eventually, you know, because the, you know, it gets a lot more stable with hardware. Um, and, uh, and you have to be ready for it to, for clients to, you know, manage that. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. You know, uh, Alex, in the early days of, uh, the DSLRs, I used to make up shoots. I'd find fun bands in town and I'd invite all of my shooters that I normally would work with say, Hey, come shoot this band. It's going to be fun. I'll buy you beers. You know, we'll have a good time. No pressure. And, um, you're talking about do, doing things for free to get to get good at it. And I started making these videos for these bands, and I, I got pretty good at it. And um, I, a lot of them wanted to hire me, and I realized these people have zero money. So I got, it was, I got too good. <laughs> they, they, they all wanted me to do stuff, and it was just uh, uh, it, it wasn't super profitable. So I got out of it pretty quick. But it had a lot of fun yeah. Shoot, yeah. shooting the bands. Yeah. And, and then also, it's also figuring out where that content might be valuable to somebody else. So maybe charging the people who are making the content or that are in front of the camera, maybe not the thing to do, <laughs> you know, so maybe it's, exactly. you know, like, like, you know, for instance, I want to do a bunch of concerts here because I'm working on concerts all through the next year. And I need more people. Like, I literally just need more people that I know that know how to cut shows and, and use cameras and do all the things. And so I'm like, you know, just, you know, I'm to, just as training ops, I just need to have things to do. You know, and so um, that's what we're working on right now. And my whole point was I just wanted to get these guys used to shooting with the DSLRs because we yeah. wanted to use them for the picture quality, but they didn't want to. They said, it's not a real game. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Um, leave it to Chris Fenwick to ask the question in a form of a hand raise. So here we go. Chris, update on the Fiverr discussion from earlier. May I interject? All right, go ahead, Chris. I heard back from Keenan. Here's the deal. Uh, it's called freelancer.com is what he uses. He says, post it as a contest. Be specific in your description and make the context, the content, the contest as long as you can. They will charge you to extend it later. He says, most of my logos end up, um, I post for a $50 win. And it works really good. Anyway, it's freelancer.com. I think Mitchell asked that question earlier. Thank Next you, question. Chris. Next question from Talalek Lopez-Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. Has Ace been corrected for Ventura? Good, Chris. 
It's working on my system. Uh, I have it on several machines with Ventura, and Ace is working just fine. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, a little bit of context. Rogabiba has a lot of great apps, and the backbone of this is Ace, or Audio Capture Engine. Um, it was a little bit weird for Ventura for a little while, but uh, yes, yeah, this is the most recent uh, update, which is April 14th. I've had no issues whatsoever. And I've, I've made no attempt to fix it. <laughs> I'm just waiting until I, 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 uh, I, eventually I will, um, I don't need it right now and I'm just busy. And so I'm just like the idea of going through any kind of install process on my work machine is not something I'm super excited about. So I'm, what I'm probably going to do is, is, uh, put a, what I'm working on right now is getting another or taking one of my Mac minis and giving it a mission of being just my zoom engine. And then I can put all of these things on it. And it's just as it's just a my zoom connection device, so that I don't have to have my core computer tied into um, all this stuff, you know, that's, but taking my core computer out of the out of the mix um, of, of zoom is what I'm trying to do. Um, next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany. Does someone have a recommendation for a hearing protection device for concerts? that lowers the volume but does not take away the quality of sound. Good, Bill. Yes, my recommendation is to always use them if you possibly can, or at least have them available. If you're doing one concert, even if it's loud, it's probably not going to damage you forever. But exposure to high sounds is cumulative over your life. I would do a search on Amazon for musicians earplugs, not headphones, because you're not looking for um, like a drummer being able to hear the full mix of the band. In this case, you're looking for hearing protection. So musicians, hearing protection. You will find a wide range. At the high end, $150 to $300 for the kind that you can go to an audiologist and get an ear mold made and really do a good job of uh, lowering the volume of the sound but keeping all the frequencies intact. Down on the bottom end, there are actually some decent ones at $15 to $20 that try to do the same kind of thing. They're less sophisticated, but any of those will help you if you have to be like a worker at a concert and you're doing a lot of this, you should always have hearing protection in. Your hearing is cumulative over your life and damage does not reverse itself. So be safe. Yeah. And, and it, it, it isn't, uh, I will say that it doesn't take much. It, it's not like you need something that's going to make it super quiet. You need something that's going to take you know, 15 to 20 dB off the edge, you know, like, and that's really what it, what, you know, what you're looking for is not um, something that's going to remove everything uh, and make it quiet. It's just, just needs to take it down so that it's below 85, 80, 85 dB is really the important thing there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And I'd suggest something that, uh, you know, like the ones, the, the foam type plugs that you squish down and expand foam and, and stick into your ears is one thing because if you were there are professional hearing protection you know devices but they look like this and you kind of look like a dork if you're at a I concert, saw some of the wearing, concert last wearing week. those <laughs> like that and there are people who take their kids to a concert or something they don't want to damage their kids hearing and they will have those type of hearing protectors uh they're designed for industrial use you know yeah. or you know the ones that the ones that uh, Bill Bill's recommending uh, are pretty low profile, and they also um, are designed to keep the high end. The problem with the the just the standard earplugs is that they'll knock a lot of the high end out and sound muffled. So, um, but these other ones will will generally be high fidelity. Uh, next question: Douglas Carmichael asking, "What's the secret to optimizing a native DAW to record and playback three digit track counts?" Uh, go ahead, uh, Jason. Money. Lots and lots and lots of money. Um, no, really, it's 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 I/O and um, and it's just system resources and it just scales accordingly. Yeah, I, I I'd watch the Metallica thing. It's 
pretty cool. <laughs> they, they, they show that. But there are companies, there's a company called Diablo here in uh, Oakland, um, and they do specifically, they build Pro Tool rigs that are designed to record concerts. Like that's that's what all they do. They have a little warehouse and, and you come and you pick up a rack and the rack is about 55 inches high and it's just got all the Pro Tools I.O. that you need and it's got all of the, you know, the computer built in and you pull it out and it just does the thing. And that's what, and usually something like that is what's being used for that. It's not someone's laptop. It's a, it's a dedicated piece of hardware um, that is the Pro Tool I.O., the can do Dante and Maddie and oftentimes even analog for some of these. So those are the things to look for. Next question. Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California, and right here in our panel, anyone going to the HBO camera test screening in L.A. this weekend? Man, it looks like all the fun stuff is happening in L.A. Um, Courtney, what's what's this one? Well, you remember I talked about the uh, uh, HBO uh, camera assessment uh, screening. Uh, where they assess uh, these uh, Area Alexa Mini, the Sony Venice 2, the Red Raptor, Blackmagic 12K, the Area Alexa 35, and the Kodak uh, 5210 uh, film, film, 35 millimeter film. Uh, and comparison, it's, a, it's an hour and a half long uh, digital presentation that'll be at the Linwood Dunn Theater at 1313 Vine Street in Hollywood at 9 a.m. on Saturday. The the previous screening that Sempty held along with the uh, uh, CAS was uh, uh, sold out, and uh, uh, although there were a few seats left, uh, so they're doing another screening of it this Saturday from 9 a.m. to uh, actually it starts at 10. When are they, Sign when are they in coming up here? Well, it's Hollywood, you know. That's where all the DPs hang out. And that's where they want to see this valuation. But it's an interesting hour and a half. I saw it the last time, uh, the last time it showed. And uh, it's interesting comparison if you want to find out which cameras can handle, uh, you know, overexposure better than and underexposure better in all types of lighting situations and uh, motion and all of, all of those things. And they're all done. All of the comparisons are done with the same set of Zeiss lenses. So there's high quality glass used and the same glass used on each of the cameras and the same setup used. In, and each shot is composed on all five of those cameras. And you get to see them uh, side by side or compared one after the other. So you can really compare and see which ones are going to work the best for you in whatever situation if you're a DP. Next question. From Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany. If you have several Macs to support an update, do you give them all the same Apple ID or do you get different ones? I go, Jason. Me personally, yeah, I have I have a lot of Macs, but I, you know, at the moment, the the stack of four or five that are on my desk, um, do all have the same Apple ID. If you really have a lot of them, then um, Apple has made this a lot easier. Um, you can use their small business deployment, and um, it will save you a little bit of money. But um, man, how many Macs are you talking about? That's really the question. I go ahead, Bill. Yeah, exactly what Jason said. If you're in a commercial kind of circumstance, I wouldn't put them under my personal ID. But it is incredibly convenient to have Apple know which computers are mine. All my devices are linked to my Apple ID. That is how Apple manages everything. So it's something you should do carefully and do once if you want to get in that ecosystem. In other words, don't change your um, Apple ID willy-nilly because it's hard to get things like purchases of iTunes and other things that you've done through the course of time transferred from one Apple ID to another. So you should do it once, do it right. And I think putting all your devices under that just makes it easier for Apple to support you and for them to know. I mean, it's been really nice 
to be able to go on and find old computers that I've sold and just get them out of the system. And then everything from that old computer is gone. I don't have to worry about it showing up in my records anymore. I just love the fact that I jump on, I log into iTunes or not iTunes app store and I hit go and it just installs all the, <laughs> most of the software that I use on that, on that computer. It makes it much easier. Next question. Looks like our last one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Comment on Financial Times Sam Altman's fission startup Oaklo and life extension startup Retro. Alongside OpenAI and WorldCoin, it may reshape society and will draw regulatory scrutiny. I'm surprised that it's fission. Uh, go, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Well, I looked at the Oklo, which is a, a fission reactor, and I think it's a fairly old type of uh, uh, a liquid metal type reactor, uh, breeder reactor. So it can take uh, its spent fuel and uh, load it back in and use it again. So, uh, and these are fairly small reactors, I think, uh, that they're looking at building for lower wattage rather than supplying a whole city with power, but maybe just an area or a smaller or an industrial type situation, or if a remote uh, a remote facility out in the middle of nowhere, you could have one of these small breeder reactors to uh, generate your power for a plant. <laughs> for some reason, I'm imagining a, a fission reactor on a backpack. Like I can just set, set it down. I mean, this thing will last all weekend. <laughs> It'll just drop a little piece. Of, I got a little bit, a bit of plutonium in here. I'm just going to drop it in. Go ahead, uh, Chris. It's the Mr. Fusion that goes in the back Mr. of your... Exactly. <laughs> Why not? How are we not? Like, you know, we're, it's the, you know, we don't, we, all these actors don't have enough, nothing, nothing, they don't have anything to do right now. So let's get them to do some commercials for us. And Mr. Fusion... <sighs> Mr. Fusion would be perfect. Uh, Backpack, lunchbox, and pocket. Go ahead. ahead, Don't drop more than six feet. Uh, Go go ahead, Chris. So Altman's got Oclo and there's Retro, and I think Scooby-Doo had one called (laughs) Rut-Ro. That's it. If Octo goes bad, then it's rut row. <laughs> go, go ahead, Jason. How am I supposed to follow that with something serious? Okay, uh, if you're ever in Portland and actually want to see a nuclear reactor, Reed College has one, and it is very small, but it is insanely cool to watch. Um, I wouldn't put a backpack on with a reactor, but, you know, I mean, Fenwick is absolutely going to be modeling in one, you know, <laughs> in one of these L.A. trade when you, shows. When you can see that you're wearing the backpack, but you can see the glow through your chest, you know that... Oh, really? The glow means it's working. <laughs> it's leaking. It's leaking. Constant like, x-rays available, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, good, Chris. Just something to ponder. Uh, you know, I'm eternally fascinated with all of the stuff that's going on in Congress with these hearings, with all these UFO sightings and whatnot. What if Elon has put all this technology into these 33 rockets on the bottom of the giant booster and we're like on the verge of being uh, bestowed upon humanity, unimaginable technology that is about to become uh, uh, true and all this rocket technology is just going to be thrown out. Just Where do you thought. think all the rocket technology came from? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I truly believe, you know, I've, I've said this before, you know, the day before any technology becomes a reality, there was a time when you couldn't, you know, pick up a thing and talk to anybody in the world. There was a day before Kitty Hawk when flight was impossible. There was a day before Tranquility Base when walking on the moon was impossible. All these things are impossible at one point, and then they become commonplace. Well, not tranquility-based, but you know what I mean. So uh, I think it's at least 
feasibly possible that some sort of technology that that did allow some sort of alien technology uh, visitation to humanity over the last millennia. What if we're on the verge of being of that being disclosed? Like, Chris, oh, are yeah. you talking like anti-grav or something like that? Yeah, why not? Anti-gravity or... I, I'm saying slingshots. It could be slingshots. It could be, you know, folding over space and time, quantum Spinning. entanglement, whatever you want to call it. Spinning. There will be a day when we know more than what we know today, right? I'm still caught up with the idea that, that teleportation is actually destruction copy print. Yeah. Like that, that is, that's, that, that really, uh, you know... It's I, not copy-paste, it's move. Discredit. You can disassemble and reassemble everywhere. Why can't you disassemble and multi-copy everywhere? I watched an interview. Thirty of you come out the other side. One of you gets digitized. Just the other day, where the guy said, "Everything you've seen in Star Trek is within our. We can do already. You just don't know it." Okay, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not going to buy that yet. All right. Uh, great, great discussion. It was good, 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 good. Uh, two hours of Q and A. It's closer, closer to a Sunday than a than a uh, than a than a Tuesday, but uh, or Monday. But uh, it was good. It's good, good, good. Two days in a row. Um, all right. Uh, thank you. Or is it Tuesday today? It's today is Tuesday, yeah. isn't it? I was thinking it was Monday. It's just been one of those weeks already. Um, great, great discussion. Thanks, thank you to the panel uh, for being here. Um, and uh, it's it's good to have you here, Michael. So welcome to our to our little show. Um, a, a quick reminder that the uh, show, we will be doing more show practice at noon Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific uh, Eastern Standard. You can see the link in the email that goes out. So, um, so if you're interested in, like Michael, jumping on the panel with us and being part of this panel and be part of this discussion, um, and he did a great job. You did a great job on, the fir- on your first day out. Yeah, uh, well done. Good, good, uh, well thought Thank thought you. process. So, so, I th- so, th- so this this little um, practice session that we're doing is working. So, so anyway, um, uh, so if you're interested in being a part of the panel, we'd love to have you. Um, and uh, uh, thanks to the panel again. Thanks to the uh, producers for all the great questions. Keep, keep us going forward. And thanks to the incredible team that makes this happen. We have, uh, we have a development team, the management team, the production teams, all of the teams that make this happen. Um, we really appreciate all of your contribution. Um, and we uh, we traveled, uh, I got some, I think, 115,000 miles. It was a busy day today. 115,000 miles. That's 186,000 kilometers. And that is more than 918 million bananas for scale. All right. Let's jump into after hours. Next company is going to be called Red Shirts Incorporated. I, I, I so want to do a company called Rut Row. Like, how did that someone not have a cut? Oh, yeah. Case in case, one probably has that patented. It should be a problem. It should be a problem uh, solving company. Like, it's just, we just solve problems.